In a town that's been, who's there to ride to anyway? to Gotham TV Podcast, Zero Year, Episode 7. I'm Derek, I'm one of your hosts. Hello, I'm John, I'm your other host. And on this episode we're going to be talking about Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins, the first in the trilogy of his Batman films. Uh, really looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, no, me too. Uh, really looking forward to, to talking about it. Also slightly apprehensive, it's uh, you know a fairly big film. Um, yeah. It kicked off three films that are made almost $3 billion dollars. At the box office, and I personally am a pretty huge fan of Nolan and the films that he's done. Yeah, this, um, this pretty much so, kicked his career into high gear from you know doing Memento, um, yeah. which did did well. Kind of has a lot of critical acclaim. Absolutely love it uh, myself. And then it kind of he went on to to direct probably the most well known superhero franchise uh, of all time. Yeah, so a bit of bit of trepidation here, trying yeah. to sort of scrutinize and, and review um, a Christopher Nolan film, um, but I've enjoyed it and looking forward to, to doing the review now. So yeah. I suppose um, with that, though, we should move on to the, the news. Now for a City Watch news brief here on GCN. Yeah, there's been quite a lot of news coming out over the last couple of weeks since we, uh, since we recorded our Gotham trailer breakdown we did uh, two weeks ago. We've got loads more. Loads yeah. more news on Gotham, like tons of it, uh, and loads more news about the DC Connected Universe, which is the other piece we, we talk about. So I suppose yeah. to kick into the biggest news, I suppose, first, because the biggest news was a piece of cinematic news. Yeah, I mean, week. essentially, in non-Gotham news, it's that Zack Snyder last week sort of tweeted that the coveralls or the tarpaulin needed to be removed from a suspicious vehicle in, in a photo that he released on Twitter. And um, lo and behold, the following day, we got a reveal of the new Batmobile for Mm -hmm. the Batman versus uh, Superman film, scheduled for 2016. But also in it, um, there was Ben Affleck as Batman in the new Batsuit with the cowl and the cape and the suit and looking rather chunky, I thought, and um, pretty buff. Um, yeah, chunky's, chunky's a word. Uh, I, think, I think I read um, one comment um, somewhere which said someone's been eating all the pies, but I think that's a bit harsh. I think a that's bit. a bit harsh. Yeah. Pie eaters tend not to have pecs and a six-pack. Yeah, well, um, I, I suppose that's definitely one good thing that we've seen in the photograph. There's no bat nipples, so it's not a return to the Joel Schumacher-era <laughs> uh, Batman, which is really good. Um, very much to me, he looked like he looked like Frank Frank Miller's Dark Knight from Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, um, kind of much bulkier, heavier, heavier set, kind of older, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah for those of you who haven't read uh, Dark Knight Returns, it's uh, the graphic novel. It's um, it's about a retired Batman who gets back into the suit for one last time, so a much older Batman. So in keeping with that, Ben Affleck is a much older actor. He's probably the oldest actor to play Batman since George yeah. Clooney, I think. Um, so at this stage, he's uh, he's probably going to be taking on the role of a mentor to Superman potentially in uh, in the next film, Batman versus Superman is what people are still calling it. So we'll yeah. continue with that. Uh, and what did you think of the Batmobile in terms of 
of its look. Yeah, I was very cool. pretty excited by it. Yeah, yeah, very cool. It's uh, the wheels are huge, but uh, <laughs> it looks kind of like a mix of the Tim Burton Batmobile uh, mixed with the Tumbler from the Chris Nolan films. Yeah, it seems a uh, it seems to have that chunkiness of the Tumbler, but also there is a sleekness to it, and certainly with the hood, that swept back hood and mm-hmm. the kind of the bat ear type. Um, spoiler at the back type thing and um, really really looks like the the tim burton's batman i i thought just kind of that long front bonnet and the swept back hood um yeah. leading into the spoiler at the, at the back it's very really cool. evocative of uh the the tim burton batman yeah absolutely um, so everybody has a bit of feedback on on the new suit don't they including one of our listeners yeah no uh joe lynch on um Twitter, Twitter. Yeah. Uh, basically kind of spotted what looked like a face uh, within the smoke uh, at, at just behind Batman on the rear of the Batmobile. Uh, I kind of looked at it and thought, is it just the wheel? Is it just um, uh, an illusion? I think there was a suggestion that it looked like the Joker. Mm-hmm. I Then when I started to look at it, I thought it looked a bit like the Scarecrow Rim. with the hat. I thought I could see a hat, but I th- then I started to think, well, actually, <laughs> is this you know, is, is this what it's meant to do, get get us all talking? But, but certainly, um, yeah, we saw it as well after Joe Lynch had pointed it out yeah, uh, on I, Twitter. I, once um, he pointed it out, yeah. I could not see it. And then... Suddenly, I started seeing stuff in my feed on Twitter, like from Starburst magazine, where somebody had pointed it out there. It's like Jer was the first person I'd seen say it, and then suddenly it kind of went over the internet that everybody was yeah. seeing a little face in the in the in the photo. It's a good spot, Jer, definitely. Absolutely, but are we reading too much into the photograph? I'm not too sure. I thought it was it looked like the wheels, but again, we're bound to. We're excited about Batman versus Superman, and certainly if you know Batman potentially is sort of that older, grizzled, probably knock uh, knock the bells and lights out of, out of Superman. <laughs> <laughs> There's a battle we'll be seeing in 2016. Um, so we'll see you know, we're goes. pretty excited, and any kind of hints is, is really interesting to see. Absolutely. So I suppose on to our Gotham news. We've got loads of Gotham yeah. news this week as well. So this is probably, we think, the last real news we'll see till the summer. Um, it's a big week for TV in in America. It's uh, it's a week called the Upfronts. Uh, what the Upfronts are is where uh, a co- where each of the TV companies will bring all of their best programming for the uh, for the autumn season or the fall season to one show, and they'll show off trailers and clips and interviews, in- interviews, yeah, and yeah. they'll bring in the timings of their TV shows so they can get advertisers to buy times during those uh, during those periods in in the autumn. So it allows them to plan. And build build money and budgets essentially for uh, for these programs. So pretty much every single uh, program that's coming up, and we're interested and excited yeah. about, had either an announcement, or the cast there, or interviews, or they had a trailer. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, first of all, we got confirmation of the series pickup uh, for Gotham, uh, and it's broadcast day, which was well, will be Mondays at eight pm on mm-hmm. on Fox. Yeah. Um, then we got a full cast photo, yeah. which was really just really nice. You had um, Harvey Harvey Bullock and Jim Gordon right in the, in the front of that picture. Mm-hmm. You had the pairings then of Alfred and the young Bruce Wayne off to the right, yeah. and the Penguin and the uh, and Fish Mooney mm-hmm. off to off to the left. That that pairing, and then up above, sort of ready to kind of leap from the the stairs. Um, into the alley was uh, the young Selina Kyle. Mm-hmm. And then behind them you had 
um, Edward Nigma and uh, Ivy Pepper. Yeah. Who, incidentally, um, what we can say here is that they have been confirmed as series regulars now for season one, which I think is um, really good news. Certainly, yeah. as a Edward Nigma Riddler fan, yeah, um, that's really I'm really excited to see that. And then slightly further behind um, those two was a little tease, potentially, mm. um, of the Joker in yes. that picture. Yeah, so when we were going through the photograph, what we noticed, the first thing we noticed was a little a tease for each of the characters, each of the big villains, and what they were going to become. So we see a black cast just below um, Selena Kyle, and one wall we see a penguin poster, which signifies that Oswald Cobblepot, Cobblepot is going to become the penguin. That's quite difficult to say. It's a bit of a tongue twister. Yeah, cobble. I always thought it was Cobblepot when I was much younger. I kind of mm. always said Cobblepot, and it's Cobblepot. Yeah, it's only Tim Burton that solidified it for us. Yeah, <laughs> um, I just I wasn't hearing the P's or the B's. But <laughs> and then on the other side, there was the question mark for the Riddler. Yeah, and um, you had Ivy growing up. The, the walls of the alleyway as well. Mm-hmm. You had... Just a, yeah, just above Just Ivy above Pepper, Ivy just, Pepper, yeah. Then you had the spotlight shining in the, the background in the night sky, mm-hmm. presumably with a bat signal uh, on one side. Yeah. And just beside that, which John spotted and I didn't, was a playing cards, essentially a set of yeah, playing cards. Yeah, a set cards. of neon... like a It's like a club sign with a set of neon... Uh, sort of playing cards, calling cards, um, and I, then you kind of looked at that and you just wondered whether that was um, the Joker. Yeah. There's uh, a tease for the Joker, and yeah. certainly he is being teased uh, to everyone um, who's following this series quite heavily, and by the Helmers as well. Yeah, in, a, in an interview with, with Bruno Heller, um and Danny Cannon, there's there's kind of a presentation they did for for the upfronts, which included some footage of the TV show, some that we hadn't seen before, some that we talked about in our last episode. Go back to episode six and listen through our kind of breakdown of that. But um, they're very much trying to sell this show. Obviously, this is the perfect time to sell it to advertisers. So they're they're teasing a lot of things out in it. So some of the things they teased in there was um, Danny Cannon said, "You don't want to miss an episode of this show because it might be the episode where we introduce the Joker." Um. Additionally, he says some other some other yeah. stuff. I think yeah. so that we may show you why the Scarecrow becomes the Scarecrow, mm-hmm. and obviously that's Doctor Jonathan Crane. Yeah, um, who's going to feature heavily sort of later on in in our review of Batman Begins. Absolutely. So there was a, a lot of that. I think as well we got um, confirmation that Victoria Cartagena it was going to be a season regular as well as Rennie Montoya, mm-hmm. along with her partner, at least within the Gotham Central series that we've been covering, um, the Anthony Stewart-Jones as Crispus Allen. So that's really, really interesting. We're wondering whether they're going to be a good substantive sort of second detective partnership in, in the GCPD that you get to see them evolve and develop uh, much more as well as the main detective protagonists of Harvey Bullock and, and Jim Gordon. Yeah, I'm kind of hoping with the with the fact that the show is named Gotham that they're going to try and concentrate on a lot of characters over the course of the season because, you know, having, having to have Jim Gordon be at the centre of every single story every episode um, could kind of lead it into some, into some uh, short storylines or stuff that can't go everywhere. Whereas yeah. if you bring in, if you bring in Montoya and Alan, uh, it gives you another pairing in the, in the 
GCPD to kind of look around the city and see what's going on, you know. Yeah, and I think our final bit of actual Gotham TV news is the confirmation of at least 16 episodes. I think we had previously talked about there being 13 episodes, Mm -hmm. but I think there's confirmation at least of 16 episodes now with possibly more episodes, maybe 21, 22 episodes for Gotham. Yeah, the average season, like a show like Arrow or Flash or... Um, or Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., that kind of thing. The average show in the States is about 22 episodes. So the confirmation that we'll have at least 16 episodes in the season, um, and probably 22, brings it more in line with other shows, I suppose. You know, a short season of a show would be about eight episodes, be closer to a UK TV show. Yeah, I mean, UK, you'd often get episodes of maybe six uh, to eight and Fox, I suppose, are known for doing some kind of shorter seasons, like 13 episodes or 16 episodes. But, you know, having something on Fox, if it's popular and, and doing well, that they can expand to 22 episodes over the season, I think is, is good for them. In addition to the Fox TV Upfront uh, presentations as well, there was uh, an interview in Entertainment Weekly. Uh, James Hibbard interviewed Bruno Heller, uh, the showrunner. And it was a very interesting interview about their research, about where the season one had been mapped in its entirety, um, that he was likening it to Rome and sort of Gotham to Rome and that kind of mythology and the the mythos there. Um, And he also made several um, points about it being sort of Nolan-esque in terms of it being a heightened universe, that the look and feel would be moody, tonally dark and gritty. Um, but he also made some fairly bold claims that it was going to be visually uh, that Gotham would surpass the Batman movies Mm. uh, and that it would be um, just, if not more, visually stunning than the Batman movies and that whilst they were visually stunning, he didn't personally, I think, feel that they were visually uh, pleasurable. And it was quite bold statements to make. It's only got a number of different news outlets talking about it. I suppose that's what a show wants at this stage, certainly when they've just provided an official trailer, an extended official trailer, which has been generally well received. So, yeah. yeah, if you're trying to promote a show in May that's going to be coming out in either October or November of the same year, you know, you've got five months to basically get people continually talking about your show. You make a bold statement like, our show is going to be visually better than a $200 million movie that made a billion dollars when at the cinema. Um, you make those kind of claims and people are going to remember them. I can see the review of the first episode taking that line and going, well, is it better than Batman Begins? Or is it better than the Dark Knight trilogy? You know, it's a it's a bold statement to make and kind of setting themselves up a little bit. They're, they're setting themselves, either they're setting themselves a really high standard that they're aiming for. And if they achieve that or even get considerably close to it for a TV budget, mm-hmm. then... Excellent. That's where you want to aim. You want to aim for that type of quality and both sort of critical and commercial reception. Yeah. Because then they're doing their job with regards to sort of the advertising rights for the show. And hopefully we then get season two. Yeah. As we mentioned on our trailer breakdown episode, our, our last episode, uh, there was 8 million people watching the 24 show where, where it was broadcast. That 8 million people watching that. There's been 6 million views of the trailer on uh, on YouTube and generally really positive um, on the look and feel of the show. So, you know, Heller's claims may be quite big claims, but 
you know, right now it's looking pretty good. Absolutely. And I think as well, it will come back to what we discussed later in the review. You know, there are certain criticisms of of Nolan as a director in terms of his um, type and st- of style and his look and image um, that maybe, you know, that's what he's feeding into, that he, he wants to associate with those movies, but not necessarily exactly with the with the style. Yeah. Um, so it, it will be, certainly we'll touch on those things um, later on in the review about yeah. that style, maybe. Stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, speaking of trailers, we've got a bunch this week of uh, trailers. <laughs> so many. Shows. I think that's pretty much how I spent most of my week, was watching stuff from upfronts for different networks. It was a crazy week. It was kind of after the extended Gotham trailer, which, I mean, we were just like, that was awesome. Just exactly what we were hoping for. Yeah. Really good. And obviously you can listen to our podcast <laughs> as to how we felt about it. Then came another DC property in Constantine that gave its trailer. And, and for me, I'm certainly pretty excited by Constantine. I mean, I read a number of the Hellblazer comics and, yeah. and the series that are going to form the basis of this show. Um, I love the fact that he's got his blonde hair back. He's got a, his khaki trench coat and he's also got, a, uh, you know, he's a British accent. It's not a Scouse accent now. Yeah. He doesn't really like speak like this, you know. But uh, kind of identify with Constantine. <laughs> I do a bit, yeah. Um, but he—he he certainly, you know, it looks good. There's certainly a lot of talent behind that TV show, at least for the pilot, at least hopefully for season one. Yeah. With um, Neil Marshall again, David S. Goyer, who yep. has who wrote and provided the story for Batman Begins that we were reviewing. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there's a huge amount of talent there. And if you want to hear a bit more complete breakdown of, of the uh, of the trailer, John wrote a really good article for TheEffect.net, yeah. um, which put up this week. Um, it's really good. I have to give you a bit of praise for that. Thank you. Really, good. Uh, really looking forward to it, must say. The humour comes out very, very well yeah. in, in the Constantine trailer, I must say. Um, but yeah. And so also with the Constantine trailer, we also found out that it will be on Fridays at 10pm, mm-hmm. and that is going to follow Grimm. So that's interesting to kind of supernatural type uh, TV shows, mm-hmm. along with, as well, Supernatural as a TV series. Yeah. So yeah. The, it's kind of interesting, this move towards sort of the dark arts and the sort of magic and, and ghouls and ghosts and demons and heaven and hell and yeah. purgatory. And DC um, are getting there first, aren't they? Right. Well, <laughs> I'm excited by it, but I'm hoping that this is because they realise that Doctor Strange is on his way and <laughs> that the Sorcerer Supreme will... <laughs> Oh, I wouldn't mind if he hooked up with John Constantine and they went round blazing a, a trail. <laughs> <laughs> the first DC Marvel crossover movie. I love it. Love it. Um, it could be called Doctor Strange Love. <laughs> that would be pretty strange love, actually. Um, yeah. So the other the other big trailer I know that a bunch of our listeners are pretty excited about it. Flash trailer came out this week. Uh, it'll be shown on Tuesdays at eight pm. Uh, Arrow shown on Wednesday. Uh, this is made by the same creators um, on the CW uh, network. So. Uh, very similar style to uh, to Arrow, but there yeah. seems to be a lot more budget behind this show. Uh, I can definitely say that the uh, the trailer showed. I think most of the series. <laughs> yeah, it was a long trailer, five yeah. minutes or, so, or something. Yeah. yeah, but it didn't just look like the pilot. It looked like they were showing off everything that happens <laughs> in the season. So. Although, remember, I I watched the wrong trailer. I watched the teaser trailer. Essentially, Derek kind of called me up and said, um, "Look, the the Flash." Uh, trailers out. Um, I was away with work um, in, in Finland, and it was 
I went on, che- checked it on YouTube, and it was like, it was the teaser trailer. Mm-hmm. I kind of went back to Derek and said, "It's really short. It's <laughs> like it's just it, compared to what Gotham and Constantine had put out. It's yeah. really different, and I didn't know whether it worked." But I had actually just watched the wrong trailer. <laughs> and, yeah. Luckily, it wasn't the nineties so, TV show that you watched. No, exactly. It was a long, long trailer. Yeah. Um, some pretty good. Um, it's pretty good special effects good for a trailer effects, as well. Yeah. Because it, what I was thinking was, you know, they they obviously put a lot of planning behind it by uh, by doing a crossover with Flash within the Arrow series. Um, they obviously know that this is one of the, their big cash cows. If they get Arrow and um and Flash on the same network showing every week you, you can do crossovers between the yeah, two a lot it, you've already shown in the trailer that arrow is going to be in the first episode of flash yeah there's huge potential there and if if they get it right it will be pretty good i think yeah yeah absolutely so that's it i think for for the news um yeah, lots there but, yeah, yeah definitely <laughs> so um i think that brings us on to our feedback dr green isn't here right now but if you'd like to make an appointment... One of the things uh, I think we just need to just talk about on the feedback is with regards to the competition. Because mm. in earlier podcasts, we had talked about the um, a competition that we're running for a signed Matthew J. Fletcher print of a, a Penguin poster. And we just want to clarify that this is open to anyone, anywhere. Uh, international delivery applies and we will send it anywhere to anyone so please there's no restriction on who can enter into this competition yep it could be on krypton or oa you know you could be sending in your feedback from there we'll see if we can find someone to post back to aquaman it might get a bit soggy (laughs) yeah it's a beautiful uh, poster we've talked about a few times all the details are up on the website of what you need to do it's simply to provide us with some feedback that we talk about on the show and and the one who provides the best feedback um, will win the poster. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think we've got um, a fair amount. First of all, I think we're putting our own names into the hat <laughs> <laughs> by um, providing feedback on our own podcast. Um, and by that, I mean episode six um, of, of our podcast, where we uh, broke down the trailer that had been released during the, the Fox Up Front. Mm-hmm. And we had spotted uh, John Doman from The Wire, and we had initially indicated that he was... He looked like Commissioner Logue. Yeah, I think we probably made that assumption because he was in the wire and played a policeman. And, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you just make that assumption automatically. And the minute it was in my head, it didn't change for the whole podcast. And then when we did our review, it didn't change. No. And then we kind of looked back over it and we started to see that potentially he could be a Carmine Falcone type person or yeah. a mafia mob boss. Uh, or Carmen Falcone, that'd be cool to bring yeah. into the show. Actually, yeah, it'd be brilliant because we see we see him very much involved in the sort of that meat processing factory where there's all the sort of tarpaulin sheets down, and and he's there behind these guys coming in firing guns, which was released as part of the uh, Fox Upfront interview with Bruno Heller and, and all that. Yeah. Uh, now it's only a very short glimpse, and we think it's him. But we basically think that maybe, you know, he isn't the commissioner. Maybe he's more of a criminal within the show. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he could still be the commissioner. He could still be Commissioner Loeb. Because if you look back at our Batman Year One review, it's very much that Commissioner Loeb is in the pockets of the Mafia yep. and is doing their dirty work. Maybe from what we see, that's a bit 
too that's getting your hands a bit too dirty for a commissioner of the <laughs> yeah. police force. And so maybe it is more towards being Carmine Falcone or some other um, mob boss or mafia boss uh, within Gotham. Yeah. But we just thought we'd share that with you because it certainly, I think we initially just went, oh, it's Commissioner Loeb. It, it, but he isn't on IMDb at the moment. Um, yeah. There's no credit of him on the the IMDb uh, page for, for Gotham TV yeah, series. Yeah, and considering the actor John Doman was instantly recognized by pretty much every site out there as to, as to uh, who the actor was, um, they picked up the fact of who, of who the actor was, put up images of him, um, snippets of him from the trailer, and we still don't have confirmation on IMDb as to what character he plays. I think there's a reason behind that. I think they're trying to keep keep a bit of a bit of a, a bit of a, a shade over the top of who he is. Yeah, and a bit of mystery and suspense. Um... Yeah, mystery is the word I would look for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, so we received some Twitter feedback from Doug Green, um, and he kind of went at Gotham TV podcast. Do you think the pilot will be two hours? There's lots of stuff in that extended trailer for a one-hour pilot. Yeah, it kind of goes on to we had a bit of to and to and fro, a bit back and forth, and he kind of said, you know, bringing Gordon to Gotham. There's lots of intros. There's a lot of um, you know people there like Edward Nigma, Ivy Pepper, the Penguin, Fish Mooney, and so on. Mm-hmm. There's the death of the Waynes. Um, it seems he says that it's a lot for the sixty minutes. Yeah, you know, I... and I think for a thirteen episode season that certainly it would be really nice to give the space to breathe to have a two-hour pilot yeah that would be a lot to cram it all into one it would be a lot but i think as we're learning that it is maybe at least a minimum of 16 episodes and maybe even 22 that allows things to breathe over an even longer kind of gestation period and so I don't necessarily think that they will bring all that from the trailer into just the first episode, even though I would think a lot of it has been taken from that that filming. I wonder whether they can start yeah. to um, cut it around with the new footage that they have. Yeah, I, I, I have a different opinion, which is yeah. probably why we're bringing it up. You know, um, my feeling is that this is all from the all from the pilot. This is all shot for the pilot. I do feel that everything that's shot is going to be in the pilot. I think it's going to be 60 minutes. I don't think there's there's no announcement anyway yet that it's going to be two hours. Two-hour pilot would be great. But what I do think is they're not going to answer every question that's posed by the, by the trailer in that pilot. Um, things like bringing in Edward Nibma and, and bringing in Poison Ivy, I think I mentioned last week um, mm-hmm. that those two pieces could be the only pieces we see of those characters. It could be just an introduction saying, and this is Edward Nibma, our a member of our team at the GCPD. He smiles and that's the only scene. It could be that Ivy Pepper is shown for a second at the end of the episode. But they're definitely not going to explore every bit of her character or every bit of his character. Absolutely. I, th- I think there's... I mean, on that, we're agreed. I think that it's going to be one hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it depends ultimately on the story being told. As you said in the last episode of, of the podcast, that that shot of Ivy Pepper, it looked like the end of the first episode. Yeah. So it is literally kind of, you know, someone walks in on a girl with an ivy plant yeah. and tending it and that sets up the fact that she will be in the season yeah, it could be even like a tag like the ones they do in the yeah. end of agents of shield that kind of or as you say edward nigma is brought on board as forensics to to investigate the death of thomas and martha wayne and that it's simply that i think what we'll get to later in our review is that you know you can introduce a lot into a show or a film 
but how you bring it in, how cleverly you do that, means to say whether you get the tag that, unfortunately, say the Spider-Man films, uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2 has gotten, which is, you know, oh, there were too many bad guys brought in, or what Spider-Man 3 suffered the same fate, that there was a heavy criticism that there were too many bad guys. But I think you can have a lot of bad guys introduced. It's how they're introduced and in what context in the overall story of that episode and across the season. And as we know, the intention of it is you're going to be advertising this really heavily during summer, really heavily coming up to it. You're going to get the most eyes that you get on a TV show in its pilot. You know, I think a lot of shows, you know, a big show will start out with 10,000, sorry, 10,000 viewers, a lot more than that. A big show will start out with 10 million viewers on its <laughs> and first episode it's <laughs> and, will, and will plummet to about, you know, five, six, five or six million viewers by the second episode. You know, people want to have eyes on it. If you share all the things that you're looking to explore in the series in your first episode, it will hopefully allow people to stay on board for a couple more weeks and get them interested in the show. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the the one thing you don't want to have is the situation where essentially you blow everything in the first episode and then you just gradually kind of go trail off. I mean, a lot of thing about TV shows is managing expectation and what you're you're expecting from week in, week out. And I think, yeah, you need a, a big upfront first episode, but at the same time, you have to kind of manage that you have to you have to yeah, you have to deliver every week absolutely yeah. but if you're going from you know having your audience after your first episode which is generally what happens on big tv shows in the states you have to make sure that you have some kind of hook to bring them back the next week mm. and the biggest thing you can do is go look here's our storyline for this week didn't you enjoy that and look at all the things you're going to see for the rest yeah. of the season there is a lot there in that trailer and and two hours help that breathe but you know that Gordon's arrival could ultimately be an episode, that the death of the Waynes is an episode, and probably you can build that mystery around that. We kind of agreed there with, with Doug. Yeah, that's that's what he was saying to us, yeah. So, yeah, thanks very much for that, uh, Doug. I think yeah. you've, uh, you, you're the first to enter our hat for, um, for our competition, because... It's got us arguing on air, and we haven't cut it, so, yeah. <laughs> well, that's true, actually. Um, and... Just to say as well, we obviously aren't entering ourselves with yeah. our feedback on Commissioner Loeb. I can we were guarantee. I can guarantee that. Yeah, we're only messing. Um, I think we got a bit more Twitter feedback as well. Yeah, we also then had some Twitter feedback from Joey Smith, and he's basically um, wondering whether the show and this aspect and element of the DC universe, whether it will connect to. Man of Steel, and he, and we've kind of raised this before that maybe you know this would link into some of the other connected DC universe. I mean, I think mm-hmm. we can guarantee now that it wouldn't be connecting in with Arrow or Flash, yeah. And um, but whether it would connect in at least to the Superman versus Batman movie because of obviously the direct link with Batman in there. But as one of our listeners previously had said, that it, it connects in the sense that it provide the the build-up to what goes on in Superman versus Batman. It adds to the mythos or to the timelines of of this universe, which may ultimately inform um, aspects of those characters on the big screen. Yeah. But that in terms of direct links, that might be pushing it, I think, because it's, it's a completely different timeline. It, it's further back in the timeline. Exactly. Whereas the details of Superman, Batman aren't that well-known at the moment. But certainly judging by the image, if that is um, sort of Frank Miller S. Dark Knight Returns type look, that beefier, older Batman, then this may be 
ultimately, in terms of time, is much further ahead on the timeline. I don't think the connection... Yeah, I was, I was thinking that something like Man of Steel would probably be, if this was to connect into those films, Man of Steel would have to be about 15 years after Gotham. And then, uh, obviously, Batman versus Superman will be another couple of years after that. You know, So you're probably thinking quite a considerable gap between even the end of Gotham and the start of. Yeah, I mean, I, I I couldn't see, say, Clark coming into the show in any way. Yeah, and I'm patting little Bruce on the head. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, kind of you know, field trip to Gotham from Metropolis. And speaking of our uh, of our listener who talked about uh, the possible connection between Gotham and the and the DC cinematic universe, uh, Ben Avery sent in a bit more feedback. Ben Avery from Welcome to Level Seven Podcast. We'd went, we'd mentioned on Twitter that uh, that we were really excited once we got confirmation that the show's happening because what it means for us when it was confirmed that it was going to be sixteen episodes, it means that we're going to have a full podcast. We're not going to be covering a pilot that just disappears into nothingness, which is great. So uh, so Ben's come back to us saying that he's really excited as well because it means he can follow our podcast with the show, which is great. Uh, and then gave us some feedback about the trailer itself so for the trailer he told us uh, it looks fantastic this is the good news for him uh, the imagery of bruce and his parents is haunting and that frame of film belongs in the gallery of classic images of that moment it's perfect and says everything i think we talked about that the scream of uh, of david masseuse uh, is perfect in that in that scene back to ben uh, in some ways this truly is year one more so than miller's it's been said before but this idea of following bruce as a kid is excellent uh, they seem to have picked the perfect Jim Gordon to hang the show on. I think we agree. Ben, yeah, ben, definitely. Ben McKenzie looks brilliant in the part. He looks really, really good. Yeah. Um, the look and style of the show looks spot on, says Ben. Uh, it will be difficult to keep that excellence up from week to week. And I think we've spoken about that uh, on the show tonight, that they've they've made the claim they're going to keep that up. Now, on to the bad from Ben. So Ben says, so many characters. I'm worried we could end up with the opposite problem of the beginning of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., in Agents, we were so excited with, for the potential to pull from the huge catalogue of Marvel characters, but instead we got a lot of references to the movies. Minor disappointment, but eventually we got over it. Um, here we have almost all the villains from the Burton and Schumacher movies in one two-minute ad, essentially. Two-minute commercial. Uh, Joker excluded, of course, and Mr. Freeze, so there was no bad cold puns in that in that particular piece. So, so what Ben says is, I just hope, instead of early Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. style of making us dig for the Easter eggs, that Gotham doesn't just drop Easter eggs in our lap, like, this is Dr. Victor Von Freeze, and he'll be helping us with this crime, or they can hear you all the way to Metropolis, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think that's a really good point. And then Ben goes on to, on to say... Or here's Bruce Wayne meeting villains from his future, but done in such a way that they won't recognize each other. And again, that's something that would really concern me if they kept bringing these uh, these villains up, meeting Bruce Wayne, and then for some reason he forgets who they are in the future. Here's Ben's expectations from the trailer. War is coming. He gets the implication that there's a power vacuum and Fish Mooney is one side of the war. The Waynes are casualties of that war. This is the foundation of the show. Uh, we could be getting Crime of the Week stories, like one about a creepy plant girl. Final thought, just realise that we're going to be watching a show about a hero, Gordon, taking a stand against a tidal wave of evil that is just going to continue to grow as he fights against it uh, until Batman arrives. Our main character is fighting a losing battle. There's a bit of hopelessness to Gordon's situation. Fighting a losing battle can be inspiring, though. I'm interested in the drama potential. For me, uh, Ben raises some really interesting points here. And I think something that Ben McKenzie had said in an interview, that it is this idea that the show will take a look at how Gotham got to a situation where it needed to have a guy in a cape and a cowl. Yeah. And so I think Ben is right. This idea of a losing battle against crime, that the, the web of corruption becomes too great uh, and starts impacting on people of from 
the everyday, not just the police department. Again, he's right. You, you need to introduce people for a reason. Just name-dropping of Mr. Freeze or having young Bruce Wayne meets um, Edward Nygma in a coffee shop, you know, bump into one another by accident and that. Those kind of glancing moments. That shouldn't be done very often, if at all, maybe once or twice. Yeah. Certainly, because you're going to have that anyway with Jim Gordon. We've yeah. seen that in the trailer. And maybe you could explore that better with some character of meaning where later on when batman is around you have like selena kyle or catwoman and batman it would be as i think we mentioned in our first ever show it would be useful and interesting to see this kind of development of these two characters maybe as young adolescents as Mm -hmm. teenagers certainly from the trailer we see that selena kyle is at the home of Bruce Wayne yep. because she sees a car driving down the down the road from Wayne Manor and she's looking up at Wayne Manor. So there could be this possibility that they meet. I don't think shouldn't be, but it needs to be kept yeah. meaningful and infrequent because, yeah, otherwise just this name dropping or people agree, bumping it's... into one another, that's a bit messy. I agree. And, you know, the, the whole point of Gotham, you know, the, sim- the simple point of it is that all these all these characters, the bad guys, the good guys, they're all Gothamites. They're not people that are shipped in from outside. That's the point, you know? While the comic books can introduce them walking in fully formed onto the onto the page of a comic book, the TV show needs to go right. Well, we're taking we're taking our Gotham starting from this time, uh, starting when I, there's a young Edward Nygma, there's a young Selina Kyle, a much younger Selina Kyle, I suppose, a young Oswald Cobblepot, and they're going to eventually become the villains that you see in the comic book. That means you could have 10 years worth of stuff to play with with that character and how they develop into these things that's that's the interesting and enjoyable potential for me i don't want to see harley quinn walking on fully formed i want to see harleen quinzel the psychiatrist who's dealing with people in arkham asylum or in blackgate prison becoming harley quinn over over many episodes you know i want to see that kind of yeah and that would tie in with Barbara Keane as well who is a a medic so maybe there is some potential there for them to meet and certainly you can see the potential for that and I again I think I think Ben is right I think there's a lot of worries that there were you know all these names flashing up at the end of the trailer of you know before the Riddler before the Catwoman before Poison Ivy and so on and I think if they are spread out over the season or if not between seasons if it gets a season two I think This is it's how those stories are told. And Absolutely. if they're done in a really interesting and clever way, any piece of work can stand up to having a lot of interest and intrigue from different characters and different plot points progressing yeah. it through. You could say you only have to look at Game of Thrones moving around an entire world mm-hmm. to see that all these different things can be hooked up, linked together in a in a good way. And a, a successful way, and this, there's no reason why this show can't do it. Certainly, if they've got that vision and aim. Absolutely. So thanks, Ben, for that uh, that feedback. That's really good. Um, I think I think Ben goes into the hat as well for that. That's uh, that's a good bit of chat there. Thank you very much, guys. And that's really, I think, the end to the feedback that we received. It's just to say we got two reviews mm-hmm. uh, and a comment. We received a review on iTunes USA from whispering loon and thanked us for it being an interesting and informative podcast of this up-and-coming tv series gotham 
saying we kind of thank you know our Batman history uh, and we try and integrate that that analysis into what we think about the show uh, and for the series as well as just sort of reviewing those particular pieces of work like Gotham Central and Batman Year One. So uh, thank you to um, The Whispering Loon. Love yeah. the name as well. That's really, <laughs> really good name. Absolutely. Thanks thanks for that. And it's always good getting iTunes reviews. We've mentioned it before. It allows people to find our podcast if you leave an iTunes review. If you leave it in your own country, that's great. You know, most people have to. Um, but can you, if you want to just pop us on an email after you've left the review, um, you can get us at gothamtvpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, just pop us on an email just telling us what country you've left the review in because we're we're based in Ireland, as you know, um, and we have to kind of search around every country just to find these reviews sometimes. It takes a little bit of time to get it through to us, but we appreciate it so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, and then we received a comment on, on our website um, from from Irene Ryan. Mm-hmm. She goes, uh, hi, guys. I just wanted to say I loved episodes four and five with the 20 or so comics review. Really brought them to life. Um, you know, got the eyes for the detail and lots of things that uh, she wouldn't have thought of or she didn't notice. She's really, um, she says she's hooked. She's loving it. She loved the, the story arc of Marcus Driver uh, uh, and Mr. Freeze and the abuse of Ray by Toya, which I mean are excellent threads really of threads, Gotham yeah. Central. Yeah. She kind of was saying she thinks that we are sounding even better on the second and third. Listen, uh, maybe that's because my cold has gone. Remember, I had that <laughs> dreadful cold that's at true. one stage. Um, so again, thanks, Irene, for, for that comment that you left on the website with regards to um, episodes four and five that yeah. were the Gotham Central review. So you yeah. know, if you only just coming to us now check those out see what you think provide yeah. some reviews we hope you, we can provide some interesting new material for you to read or to to listen to i mean certainly i think for ourselves gotham central came about because we saw a picture by ben mckenzie on his twitter feed and, yeah. and we had both never read them and i think we're finding them to be a really good comic series mm-hmm. and i mean at the moment we've got that little break from from them uh we moving into some of the films so we're doing batman begins uh, and also then the rest of the the dark knight trilogy we can't wait to get back to to looking at the rest of those the, the of the comic series yeah yeah absolutely and i suppose that's a perfect point really to move on to our review of batman, batman begins batman begins yeah, looking forward to it a fall, didn't we, Master Bruce? And why did we fall, Bruce? So we can learn to pick ourselves up. Batman Begins came out in 2005. This was eight years after the critical failure of Batman and Robin, which starred George Clooney and his bat nipples, and directed by uh, <laughs> directed by Joel Schumacher. I think... Ev- and what nipples they were. Yeah, I think everybody has to agree that that is a movie that has to be seen to be believed. Uh, apparently written by a committee. Eight-year-olds. Yeah, written by mm-hmm. you know, the direct... The, the, the producers brought in their eight-year-old kids to tell them what they wanted in a bat movie. Goldfish you know. were involved, I think. <laughs> I think it was, if you watch it, definitely. Death uh, by neon. <laughs> absolutely. Um, at that stage, no one really expected a big screen return for the bat. It was doing quite well in animated form um, for a while, and obviously the comics generally were doing quite well, but 
that handed the reins of the franchise over to David S. Goyer, who at the time I remember reading, you know, comic book movie magazines. He was connected with every single superhero at the time. He wrote Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., starring David Hasselhoff, of all people. <laughs> that classic uh, version of yeah. Nick Fury. The classic aversion yeah. of Nick Fury, or perversion of Nick Fury, whatever you want to say. <laughs> um, he also wrote Blade 1, uh, 2, and 3. And Blade was the first Marvel superhero. People yeah, the always, big one. Yeah, people always credit Spider-Man as being the kind of kickstarter of this generation of of, uh, of superhero movies. But really, it was Blade. Um, yeah, it was Blade, definitely. Pretty adult superhero film, um, pretty dark superhero film. Contained Bros. Contained one of the members of Bros, yeah. yeah. Um, but there's definitely some elements of that that you go, okay, I can kind of see where this, guy's, where this guy was coming from, but you wouldn't have handed over the reins to Batman too. You know, now we talk about people like Zack Snyder taking on Batman and being a bit worried about it. At the time, you give it to David Escobar and you go, okay, well, what the heck's he going to do with it, you know? Um, but then they brought on Chris Nolan, who, again, at best known at the time for Memento, which was a fantastic film, but really had played in very small indeed, circuits. Very yeah. indeed, very uh, small budget. Um, and he had, well, and also Insomnia, yeah. which... He was a remake of a, a Scandinavian film, mm-hmm. uh, all about obviously a murder mystery set in um, sort of the sleeps. Arctic <laughs> and the the twenty you know the the night of the living sun. I think rather than Scandinavia, you're looking at sort of Arctic Canada, mm-hmm. sort of Alaska. Yeah, a film I really enjoyed, uh, but again, you suddenly went from this remake of a, a of quite an unknown property to yeah. a, a huge property. Yeah, uh, and a remake of a huge property. Suddenly, an awful lot of expectation as to how this will pan out, uh, and an awful lot of responsibility for for Christopher Nolan. Yeah, but he definitely worked very closely with Gore to create a vision or craft a vision for this for this series and this and this new franchise. I suppose. Um, I think we'll go through it during during our review, but there's definitely points that I feel that Nolan added something that Gore probably wouldn't have come up with at all, and there's definitely points that Gore added characters from the DC universe that. Nolan probably wouldn't have known at all. Um, so, John, do you want to give us a bit of a synopsis for, for what we're going to be reviewing? Starring Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne and Batman, Batman Begins charts the origins of the Batman in Gotham City. Following the tragic murder of his parents, Thomas and Martha Wayne, Bruce goes on an exploration to find justice or maybe vengeance for his parents' murder. In a steadily deteriorating Gotham City, an organised menace is using the criminal underworld and the corrupt for their plan. Little do they know that a new hero has been born from the ashes of tragedy. And so, from here on in, there will be spoilers. So obviously, if you haven't watched Batman Begins, we would definitely recommend watching it. But if you haven't, there will be spoilers from here on in. The podcast is going to follow a rough three acts of this film. Mm-hmm. The first act is essentially what we're calling the setup of Batman. This is why ultimately Bruce Wayne becomes the Batman. We move on to act two, where it's essentially becoming Batman. And this is the creation of the idea and the concept, the creation of the costume, and ultimately this team around Batman uh, within Gotham. Mm -hmm. And finally then to Act 3, this is the first steps of the Batman introduced to the wider city of Gotham and ultimately the resolution of the story that is unfolding behind these three principal acts um, of Batman and his beginning. 
Batman mm. begins. Yeah, and it's one of the you know, interesting point to note was that when when David Goyer was asked to do this, he was asked to kind of set it up so it led directly into Tim Burton's Batman. So if it was a if it was a failure, a, another commercial failure for for Warner Brothers, they could essentially say, well, you know, go and look at our brilliant Batman film by Tim Burton, you know, um, which is quite interesting when you think about the structure of the film. I think they probably didn't expect as much out of it as we eventually got, especially leading into a new trilogy by Christopher Nolan. So we have the opening of of the film where you have all these swirling bats. It's very reminiscent of Batman Year One, and it becomes a thematic thread throughout the whole movie, actually, in terms of these bats and, and their association, obviously, with Bruce Wayne and ultimately becoming the Batman. But the film starts with these swirling around, creating the new Batman film. There are no titles mm-hmm. uh, at all. And this is a theme, again, across all the, the films of the Nolan's trilogy, this bat motif. And it essentially moves then into this full opening sequence of, of Act One, where you have these flashbacks of Bruce Wayne as a young kid growing up, heading off to, to university on this exploration and um, ultimately to him returning back to to Gotham and this intercutting of these different periods of um, Bruce Wayne's life and and his journey that he he goes to finding out what it is he wants to do to try and get justice for his parents' murder. Yeah, a lot of the the first sequences are told in flashback where he's, where he's essentially speaking to Liam Neeson's character, Ducard, um, discussing with him about essentially how he got there, why he why he left Gotham as the millionaire playboy that he was. Um, he's instantly recognised by Ducard in the first in their first meeting. He was played by Liam Neeson. Played by Liam Neeson, yeah. Um, instantly recognised by him uh, as Bruce Wayne and, you know, the millionaire playboy and who should be living it up in his big mansion back in Gotham. So these stories set to, set the framework as to why he's doing this travel around the world and learning all these uh, And this is in techniques. prison. This is this is kind of in prison. Mm-hmm. Um he's just had a fight with criminals where he's kind of he's using these these uh, convicts as practice. Yeah. So it's you I, get love, it. I love the line where where the guy says to him, you know, uh you're in hell and I'm the devil and he goes, You're not the devil, you're just practice to me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and really it's good. and the the prison guard saying you need protection. I don't need protection from them. It's not from them. It's for them, yeah. from you. Protection. And it's it's really good. But you have Ducard in in his cell and how how is he suddenly materialized in his cell? And maybe mm-hmm. that's part of the question answers that he's using his own techniques to to do the kind of stuff you would expect Batman to do. Absolutely. So Descartes offers him the path of the League of Shadows, which is an an organization essentially where um, where Bruce will learn a lot of the techniques that lead him to on to become Batman. Um, yeah, in, in he... the in the comic books, they're not called the League of Shadows. In the comic books, they're called the League of Assassins. But I think if you uh, if you tried to encourage Bruce Wayne to join the League of Assassins, he'd probably know instantly there's something wrong here. <laughs> yeah, and Ducard is also then this spokesman for this person, Raz al Ghul, and he, he states that within the cell. So Ducard sets a task for Bruce to collect a rare blue flower in the mountains and climb up to a, a hidden monastery in the, in the mountains to meet with Ra's al Ghul, or Raz al Ghul, uh, and the League of Shadows to continue his training with him. Yeah, and so there's this climb to, to the monastery after he's he's been released from prison, essentially, and there's this great landscape shot for me anyway of the the glaciers and the ice and this is 
this occurs a few times throughout these flashbacks and and the intercutting as he makes his way up to the the monastery where the League of Shadows are, are uh, which is very reminiscent of the opening shots of Insomnia, actually. Yeah. But it's a great um, moment where you have this landscape image wide shot panning through and across the, the glaciers and ice, and you really see um, you know, Wally Fister's um, cinematography here. Uh, and it's important to you know him and Christopher Nolan in really tight collaboration mm-hmm. um, in this film and for the rest of the trilogy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely beautiful shot. Yeah, um, and when he gets up to to the monastery, uh, Bruce kind of has a bit of a, a little bit later has a bit of a chat with Ducard and kind of talks to him about his past and you know his fears. Um, another flashback to Bruce as a child playing with his friend Rachel Dawes in the garden falls down a well and is only saved when his father comes down, picks him out of the well. Uh, but has been sitting in the well surrounded by bats in their natural environment, essentially. And this is what terrifies Bruce most of all, is bats. They are his symbol of his, of his fear. Um, really interesting one to, to bring up from yeah, Christopher Nolan, isn't it? Definitely. It's that juxtaposition of the thing that ultimately Bruce Wayne should never become, mm-hmm. a bat, because he's terrified of them. Um, it, like my fear of spider, I would never obviously be Spider-Man. Because <laughs> yeah. I'd be too afraid of myself. <laughs> Get some raiders. But yeah. it's it's that whole thing. And as you say about his dad giving him the advice of, um, you know, you need to pick yourself up. You learn from your, your stumbles yeah. to become a, a, a better person. And this idea, you try and build and get over those fears. Mm-hmm. This is his big fear. This is... His fall as a young person, the impression on it and the bats just swirling uh, around him. But ultimately, it's the the symbol, it's the image, it's the the metaphor that he uses uh, for his purposes in the future. That you can't let your fears overtake you. And Descartes and and his father both have the same kind of way of talking to Bruce, um, that they're telling him all the time, don't let your fears overtake you. You can use your fears to become stronger and more powerful. I think that's really important throughout this film. While Thomas Wayne is only in the film for a couple of flashbacks, his presence is quite strong within Bruce. He obviously was a very good role model for him and for the city of Gotham. Ducard is saying the same thing. I mean, in terms of the, that climb to the monastery and, and in the prison, it is all about this idea of fear. Uh, Bruce Wayne, a young adult in, in the monastery, is like uh, he wants to seek the means to fight injustice and mm-hmm. uh, to put fear into those people who use fear on others. Yeah. Really important line yeah. um, about fear being a central part of this movie and using it on others or using it to become stronger and, and to become something elevated above your the everyday and, and your own fears. Yeah, absolutely. And they have this. They have the, the whole scene, obviously, of the death of Thomas and Martha, which takes place in flashback again with young Bruce being brought to the opera by his by his father, telling him how the Waynes have helped inspire the city of Gotham. They're quite they're, the two of them are socialites within Gotham. They take the train from their house down to down to the opera to to go and see a big a big production of uh, what I always thought was the Flight of Mouse when I was yeah. when I was younger, but. Um, but we've which wouldn't that be a dreadful thing for father to do to take the son to an opera or a movie or mm-hmm. a concert of something that he hates 
Yeah, exactly. It'd be like me going to a jazz concert, well, or my dad taking me to a jazz concert, <laughs> you know, or something like that. Um, but really interesting thing we found out is that because yeah. I had the same thing, I always thought that that opera in Batman Begins was Das Fledermaus, mm-hmm. and and it's not. Yeah, it's it's uh, Miss Pistofelle. There's my terrible Italian accent for tonight. It's a Faustian uh, opera, isn't it? Yeah, like the central story of the of the opera is that. It's a story of a demon who comes up from hell to try and uh, corrupt the hero of the story, um, tempting him in various different ways, and the hero wins out at the end, which I think is fascinating because it's obviously plays quite clearly into the Batman Begins story. Yeah, and, and that whole story and mythos. And mm-hmm. one of the things, just quickly, as as they're heading towards the opera and they're on this public transport system, this this monorail. Um, I you... can't. I can't hear that word. They're thinking of the Simpsons again. <laughs> monorail, <laughs> monorail. <laughs> I know. Monodent. I know. <laughs> I had that myself. But you have, you get this impression. It's something I, I suppose we can we'll touch on a bit later. But you, you know, the Waynes are philanthropic. They're philanthropists, um, and you you find that Thomas Wayne is divorced from the running of Wayne Enterprises. That he leaves that in the hands of people that know more about that. But actually, he's taken a step back from that. He obviously still benefits from it, but he works in the hospital as a doctor, helping other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really setting up that notion of the Waynes giving something back uh, to their society, their city, to other people less fortunate than themselves. Um, in different ways, and yeah. we'll we'll come to that a bit more, I think, later on. So his parents are gunned down by Joe Chill. This is quite quite similar to the original comic book origins that Bruce sees the murder murderer of his parents, and this face stays with him for the rest of his life, essentially. Um, it's a random act of violence. Joe Chill steal is stealing the pearls of um his mother and the wallet of his father, um, and then kills kills them in cold blood, um, and runs off into the night. You get that classic pan back of the camera shot as well from from Nolan, where you have that death scene of the young Bruce Wayne in between his father and his mother, mm-hmm. exactly as we have seen in the extended Gotham trailer just a week ago. That classic pan back, very bloodless. Then we get introduced to him and Jim Gordon. Yeah, and I just remember. By, the, I just uh, remember at the time the casting of Gary Oldman yeah. in a part which is quite central to uh, to the whole Gotham universe, but in a part that isn't a villain it was thought of as a really unusual thing. And I remember at the time Gary Oldman was always to me he was the the bad guy in True Romance. He was a an evil guy in Leon. He was Dracula. He was Dracula. Yeah. You know. The other type of bat, um, but but he's almost recogni- unrecognizable in this film. It's a think. great casting, yeah. actually. He's yeah. brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. But I think he got to the end of the film and saw his name in the credits again and went, "Oh yeah, Gary Oldman was supposed to be in this. Who did he play again?" <laughs> you know. Yeah. But uh, a great Jim Gordon, though, I must say. And one of the interesting things, just quickly as well, to try and bring it back to the TV show, is that this this space that the TV show Gotham will inhabit is this moment in the film where Jim Gordon is sat down with the young Bruce Wayne. Mm -hmm. Because actually you have that in the trailer and you have it in this film. But Gotham will inhabit that space. This film jumps to where 
he's suddenly then a young adult going off to university or yeah. Ben going off. It inhabits that world in between that and Batman beginning. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so then we're back to back to Descartes. So, you know, obviously Bruce has been relaying all this information to Descartes, um, Liam Neeson, providing all this detailed background history of himself and, his Wayne, and the Wayne family. I do want to kind of just quickly point out as well that on getting to the monastery, he immediately gets kicked in the stomach by Descartes. Yeah. And is like, he's there going, I have no strength left. Um, and he goes, fear, injustice waits for, for nothing. Yeah. And he's immediately embroiled in this fight. And then, as you say, it's like this is all teasing out as a a conversation between uh, Bruce Wayne and Ducard at the monastery about his parents and about that tragic murder. Yeah. And then it leads to an awesome fight on, on an ice lake in the center of uh, center of this glacial environment uh, in the mountains in the monastery. I love this fight. I think it's really, really good. And Liam Neeson had just come off playing... Um, Qui-Gon Jinn in Star Wars so it felt like another Star Wars battle with, with Qui-Gon Jinn uh, really really enjoyed it yeah I mean I, I love this fight as well I love the creaking of the, the ice underneath mm. their feet as they're, they're battling and I, I think it's it's a really interesting scene uh, of the film and certainly in this whole section of what makes Bruce Wayne tick uh, what it is that it drives him uh, because this this duel that's happening on the ice between Ducard and and Bruce Wayne is is intercut with the monastery and Ducard teaching him things like about theatricality and deception and being a master of your senses and, and the training. Then it cuts back with you know that crime cannot be tolerated on, on whilst they're fighting um, mm-hmm. on, on the ice lake, the frozen ice lake, uh, and this. Criminals feed on the tolerance of society, and it's kind of this mantra of the League of Shadows. Yeah. Uh, and it, and then it's the riling up of of Bruce Wayne with the death of your parents was not your fault; it was your father's. And it ultimately, despite all this training from the League of Shadows, that Bruce Wayne is still raw, uh, and in order, and his emotions take over. That this idea of Bruce Wayne as Batman investigating things, making sure he's absolutely sure of his evidence in order to follow up on these bad guys that he will eventually fight in the future. But he's governed by his emotions and Ducard sort of teases that out of him, whereby you have that great line where he goes, you compromised your your footing for a fatal blow as he hits the ice and Bruce Wayne falls then into the frozen water. Oh, sorry, the the ice-cold water. So it was really good... um, little scene i think yeah i love some of the background stuff about this scene that it actually was fought on a nice lake the, the whole area was was frozen over the following morning when they woke up after doing that full scene all the cracking was real that ice lake had melted completely by, <laughs> overnight so all that cracking that they were here and it's a pretty dangerous place to put your two main actors from a film um but it's followed up with it with with Ducard telling uh telling bruce to rub your chest your arms will take care of themselves which apparently liam neeson has said in the past that this was a piece that he made up on set. It has no basis, in fact, no no theory behind it, and he's always worried that there's going to be some Boy Scouts sitting out in the wood freezing to death because they're listening to Ducard's advice, essentially, which I think is really So, nice. Boy Scouts everywhere, yeah. do not rub 
your chest only yeah. to keep warm. <laughs> your after. arms will not yeah. take care of themselves. <laughs> they will go black and fall off. Exactly. Uh, this is where we get a little bit more information about Raz, that uh, that his wife was taken from him when he was younger, and this anger drove, drove him to take the vengeance that he takes on people. Uh, this is something that plays into some of the later films, actually. Um about Raz al Ghul. Yeah, so he he says the line, why do you not want vengeance? I did. And it, it's suddenly teasing out these differences between these two characters mm-hmm. as well. It, it kind of provides this start of um, that Bruce Wayne and Ducard, whilst they maybe don't know it themselves yet, there are some subtle differences in how they are and would approach criminals and fighting crime and fighting injustice or perceived injustice and it's which obviously down the line you see is quite different absolutely yeah uh, it, it's the start of that yeah yeah like we see bruce is still very raw from the death of his parents it's uh, another flashback scene where he goes back to uh goes back to when Joe Chill, the murderer of his parents, is being released from prison or potentially being released from prison on the uh, advice of the district attorney because he lived he lived for years in the same cell as Carmen Falcone, who's be- going to become a very central character as we go through the film. Um, so Joe Chill has some information that the DA wants on him. And after 17 years, even though he murdered the most high-profile people in the city and essentially destroyed Bruce's life, the DA is recommending that he's going to be released from prison and Bruce can't take this. So the young Bruce who's just away from, just come back from college essentially, hoping to see justice for Joe Chill, um, can't take this and, and goes to uh, yeah, goes you, to the courts to try and uh, murder him. You see him you know, put his revolver into his coat pocket and mm-hmm. um, you have this whole thing as well, just prior to that you really get a sense of him being down on his look and um, really quite down depressed about the whole thing about even just him being a Wayne and his his family's wealth and inheritance you know what does it matter he calls Wayne Mansion a mausoleum yeah you know the sheets all over the place and we see Alfred played by Michael Caine you know saying there are those who care about what you do with your future you get that sense of this supportive sort of fatherly figure of Alfred Pennyworth, played, I mean, amazingly by uh, Michael Caine, who who gets the balance of being a butler, some sly wisecracks and yeah. some sarcasm. He, he gets that balance really well. And then, I mean, he just nails the emotional points of the, the relationship between Bruce and Alfred, I think, really well. Yeah, yeah like um, you can see he's the trusted family friend yeah. as well as everything else, and he's a father figure to Bruce, but he's always going to he's always going to have a dig at him if, he's, if Bruce is going too far and stepping too far over the line. Yeah. But Bruce then obviously heads down to the courtroom to this release hearing for Joe Chill, and ultimately wants to, to shoot this guy, to take vengeance. He is wanting to take vengeance, and that's taken away from him. Bruce essentially takes the first steps towards killing Joe Chill as he walks towards Joe, surrounded by the press. The press see Bruce and instantly recognizes him, and it's like, Bruce Wayne, what, what's your comment on this? As the press are distracted, an unnamed blonde woman walks out of the shadows, shoots Joe Chill, saying, Falcone says hi. Um, this scene was really reminiscent for me of the murder of uh, of Lee Harvey Oswald, a, a, an event that was pretty much televised in the States um, when someone jumped out of the shadows and shot Lee Harvey Oswald. And I think that's definitely a reference point for um, for Christopher Nolan in this scene. 
Yeah, I, I think so. And you start to think, you know, how things would have panned out so differently if he was recognised and if he had shot Joe Chill. Yeah. Uh, it's, but it's obviously the story is that he never goes down that revenge route. Mm-hmm. He, he, you know, he's he's not able to get revenge. He has to think about things another way. Yeah, and you then come to him in the car with Rachel, yeah. and I think she gives him her take on essentially what he has been and has missed it, uh, about Gotham. That this is a city that is rotting. That uh, Falcone is flooding uh, the the city with drugs, um, producing crime, and undermining everything that his parents work with. And I mean, she ultimately is saying there is a difference between revenge and justice. And it's this, you've had Alfred's fatherly figure saying there are people concerned and worried about what you will become and your future and what you want to do with that life mm-hmm. um, previously. And then you're now bookending that with the advice of his oldest friend and contemporary Rachel Dawes disgusted the fact that he wanted to kill he thinks he's something completely different from her but I'm not the person you think I am and she's trying to say to him look there is a difference between justice and taking revenge one is for yourself and one is for the betterment of society and she gives him a good slap for it as well <laughs> um, and two for good measure yeah you know? exactly I really love uh, love Katie Holmes in this scene I think she really plays this this sequence definitely really, really well. Um, there's a, a, a lovely little uh, cinematic piece that, that Nolan does here as well, where there's, he essentially shows you the three tiers of Gotham, above the skyline tier, which is where Wayne Enterprises and all those executives occupy. And then you've got the mid-level section of Gotham, which Bruce kind of wants to protect and, and talks about trying to defend from the criminals. But then Rachel takes him into the underbelly and the bells of Gotham, the area that that he's essentially just been ignoring because it's because he he's been focusing on his own pain and what Joe Chill did to his family and destroyed it. You know, twenty two year old kid, obviously. So he ha- and he's been away and had been protected from this for years. But it's not hidden. It's just been, he's been avoiding it essentially. Yeah, and it's you know she she kind of forces home the point to to Bruce that his parents stood against injustice and that that is being undermined and that ultimately what he tried to do by shooting Joe Chill that his father would be ashamed. I mean, emotional blackmail, but I mean, good and mm-hmm. correct reconnecting Bruce Wayne with his his murdered family and just to give him that realisation that he can't do what he thinks he should be doing. And it sets him as well on this other path yeah. of, of not seeking purely revenge or, or vengeance. Yeah, and she very much sets up the idea that it's not one person that's caused the death of your family and the destruction of your life and the, the horror that is Gotham now. There's many people that are involved. She brings him to the front door of, of Carmen Falcone's club and says, walk in there, take him out. That's the man you got to worry about, even though he may not have been the one that pulled the trigger, but he filled the city with drugs and and has turned everybody against each other. If you want to go take him out, go right ahead. Everybody knows where he is, but everybody's always too scared to take him out. Um. And it leads then to, for me, one of the really great scenes of the film between Carmine Falcone, played here by Tom Wilkinson. Love Tom Wilkinson yeah. in this film. Yeah. I mean, if 
you probably know him from In the Bedroom, which is a great, uh, great film, really emotionally strong look at bereavement. And it doesn't sound like a barrel of laughs, and, and it's not. But, I mean, him and Sissy Spacek play that amazingly. I mean, Absolutely. I was, like, gobsmacked when I saw that film. Mm-hmm. Really good. He was, of course, in The Full Monty, mm-hmm. Rock and Roller, yeah. and Michael Clayson, uh, really great set of films where he's normally playing support um in the bedroom it's not but it's <laughs> in the bedroom he never plays support um sorry in the bedroom the film mm-hmm. like he's he's the main character in that yeah. with sissy spacek but you know he normally plays amazing support roles yeah um and this is just another one to add to that list absolutely <laughs> and it's, it's a great body of work and he's done a lot as well and you know but it's a really good number of films um, that we could definitely recommend for those interested. Yeah, I love how confident, though, he he takes on Bruce when Bruce walks in. You know, it's this kid. He sees him instantly. He goes, hey, you're here to, here to thank me for killing that, that Joe guy, basically. You yeah. know? Um, I'm slightly offended that you're, you've not brought a gun. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, really good. And then he kind of points out, he kind of takes this speech and it's almost the flip side of what Rachel Dawes has just told him and he goes you know look around kid you know I've got a judge union official two off duty cops and so on you know that's power you can't buy mm-hmm. um, you know he this idea he has it in the in his hand and he can control it because I can shoot you and he pulls out his gun just like that no consequences for me because I've bought people off I have my people in their places, and they will stop anything from yeah. getting at me. And that's you know? it, Sega, and that's the power of fear. People from your world have nothing to fear. Uh, you always fear what you don't understand. You know, it's again bringing it yeah. back to the fear motif that's going out, going throughout this film. It's it's all about that kind of fear that everybody has of Carmine, and that's why they won't take him down. Yeah, and he, you know, threateningly he says, "You haven't thought about your lady friend Rachel Dawes or your butler." Alfred Pennyworth, that menace that he has and the confidence yeah. that he has is really, really well played. And, and that scene, that interaction between the two is amazing because for most of it, Bruce is kind of just silent, almost de- dejected. Yeah. But you get the sense that he's listening and he's learning because of what Rachel has just said. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. To him. So. And this is what drives Bruce to leave the city. This is what drives him to leave Gotham. He's had this this fight with Rachel, his best friend. He's essentially, he thinks Alfred may have cast him off, even though Alfred's trying to protect him. He's had this fight with Falcone, and he just goes, you know what? I can do nothing in this city anymore. I'm not going back to university, and hops a ship, and off on his travels, where we pick back up at the end of those travels with uh, with Ducard again. And there's a nice touch there, then, on that flashback to the monastery, where he's explaining how he's gone now on this journey to conquer the fear but to understand criminals to understand the criminals that Falcone has just been talking to him about mm-hmm. uh, explaining to him he wants to now understand that because Falcone has kind of left him with that message that people from your world the wealthy world they don't understand this world that three-tier level that that you were describing before that Nolan sets up Actually, there's a nice touch as well where, you know, Bruce Wayne gets arrested and it's that point where he must get arrested and put into the prison that we see him in Mm -hmm. where, you know, 
he says to the cops, I'm not a criminal. Mm-hmm. And the cop says, tell that to the guy you've stolen from as he taps with his foot this box that's got Wayne Enterprises on it. You know, that's a little neat touch. And Yeah, yeah it's just showing nice. that he's exploring the criminal underworld but doesn't actually partake, essentially. So he's trying to, he's kind of setting up little plays for himself to see the feelings and see the see the actual sensations that all these criminals are going through so he can eventually use that against them in the future. And then back to Descartes' training of uh, of Bruce. This is where they crush up the blue flower that we talked about at the yeah. stars. They they uh, like this... incense, like start to smoke it. Yeah, um, and then we realize the blue flower has some hallucinogenic properties uh, involved yeah. in it. And yeah, it's a real cool scene as well. I really and Descartes this. kind of says as he's inhaling the smoke from this blue flower that you know to combat fear you must become fear. Mm-hmm. This hallucinogen sort of takes over, um, and actually this is. It's great, uh, really understated visual effects done really well mm. as well, where you start to just get this pulsating sort of world around when you get the view from Bruce Wayne with this hallucinogen running through him and the the eyes of Ducard and other members of the League of Shadows in their assassin suits sort of through the sort of balaclava slit and you see that their eyes are kind of like little silver circles and it's it's really a, a nice visual yeah. effect. Really, un, really unnerving kind of scene. Yeah. You know, it's 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 showing the fear starting to be instilled into Bruce, and then they have the little moment, which is the box at the end of the right behind all of these League of Shadow assassins or League of Shadow ninjas, whichever way you want to look at it. A uh, little box at the back of it, which Bruce is drawn towards by the hallucinogen that he's just taken. He opens it up and bats fly out, and he falls to the floor in a moment of fear. I'm wondering whether that box had anything in it at all, or whether it's like you know the Bogart and the Bogart Bogart in uh, in Harry Potter, the, where it essentially manifests itself as your greatest fear, whatever that may be. Yeah, I think so. I think that's um, definitely what it is, and I think that whole scene where Ducard is challenging him to—it's a test. This is a whole test. He's taken the hallucination. Ducard is blending in with the other ninjas, mm-hmm. and it is this test of to try and find one another before the other person finds you. Mm -hmm. And all the way through this test, there is this narrative from Ducard that is ultimately about him becoming, or Bruce Wayne becoming, the Batman. It's this narrative of, you must become an idea, you must become a concept, and it leads to this box and bats fly out. To me, that's a really just clever narrative that this person is going to become the Batman. And which path? Does he take one of vengeance or one of standing against injustice? Yeah, and as, as his reward for essentially winning this challenge by discovering Ducard in amongst all the ninjas, and him discovering Ducard before he discovers uh, Bruce, as his reward he gets initiated into the League of Shadows, and a new challenge is set for him, which is to murder a local farmer who's been stealing animals from other farmers yeah yeah and has also murdered another farmer it's you know essentially the justice that the league of shadows will take is he murdered someone we kill him uh, bruce stands up and says this is not who i'm going to be i'm not going to become an executioner and that's really that's directly from the comics this is bruce saying i am not going to become a killer regardless of who who you people are and what your beliefs are my belief is i'm not going to be be a killer Directly from the comics, this is you know a central point of Batman is that he doesn't murder people. Kind of problem in the scene, though, in that they don't agree with him. So he essentially kills all of the League of Shadows uh, that are in this training facility, burns down the facility, uh, kills Ra's al Ghul, all because of his actions. Yeah. 
Yeah, but and at the same time though, he does save Ducard. Mm-hmm. He, you know, Ducard is knocked out. He saves him from the burning building. In a sense, with regards to Razal Ghul, he is defending himself. Mm-hmm. It's not that he's willfully going to like kill him. It's because Razal Ghul is attacking him. So. Yeah, he doesn't want to be the executioner for this helpless person, mm-hmm. but and he's not going to do that. But in the death of Ra's al Ghul, that is because of how he then goes forward. And it's pure, in a sense, defense of his position that he's taken. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. I think. Yeah, that's no, my true. kind of feeling. I think one of the other really interesting things that starts to, to develop in in this scene is you get the first noticeable part of the Batman theme from Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard. And you hear that Batman theme beginning in it to develop, beginning to evolve. And this is one of the really interesting aspects of this collaboration, principally then as well, moving into the other two films between Zimmer and Nolan, mm-hmm. is this idea that you don't start the film with this fully formed uh, theme tune for the protagonist, and in this case, Batman. It's just an elemental aspect of it, which I think in that opening sequence that I talked about earlier on, of, of all the bats swirling around, it is this idea of the, the, the drum beat uh, as you build into those bats swirling around and then moving into the the opening of the film. And then here we begin to get that evolution of that theme. It adds additional layers onto the theme. And this will continue throughout the rest of the film where it adds more and more and more until the final credits. Yeah. Hans Zimmer is another one of those great contemporary composers of cinematic music at the moment. You know, people like Howard Shore in the Lord of the Rings trilogy where they're using their own music to do a full storyline of the film in their own head you know they some of them read every single piece of dialogue and just write music for each scene those guys in particular Howard Shore and Hans Zimmer are people that will write and their actual theme and a motif for each individual character and start bringing them all together as a movie progresses or as a trilogy progresses yeah. in, in some stages where you know every time you hear a piece of music it's supposed to evoke in your head that this is Batman so as as Bruce Wayne evolves and develops into the Batman, so too the theme for Batman becomes stronger and stronger and stronger as it progresses through the film. And again, it, it's just one of those, it marries conceptually together what's going on in the film mm-hmm. really, really well. And I think for Zimmer, that happens then in Dark Knight with respect to the Joker. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure we'll talk about that when we get to, uh, when we get to Dark Knight. This theme is essentially what closes out our, our act one, isn't it? This is where it kind of closes out the arc of Bruce Wayne learning everything he needs to to become Batman and then starts to make his moves to move back to Gotham from the Himalayas. Yeah, like I would totally agree with that. Theatricality and deception are powerful agents. You must become more than just a man in the mind of your opponent. I think one of the other things to explore as well is this idea of the flashbacks the setup that goes on in Act 1 and uh, in a sense that jumping around because you get flashbacks when he's a kid, you get flashbacks when he's about to leave to go to university 
And I think sometimes looking at the film, you could think that it was a flash forward almost. And then you, you're, you've you got the, the narrative going on in the Himalayas, which is almost the current timeline, if if you will. So there's a lot of flashbacks, a lot of jumping around and a lot of setup. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we want to explore certain criticisms of the film as well. And, and this was one of them that, you know, there was a lot of exposition and there was a lot of cutting around um, between young Bruce Wayne, very young adult uh, Bruce Wayne, and then obviously his story as a late 20s in the Himalayas. Yeah, and at this stage, it's about 45 minutes into the film and we haven't seen Batman. Yeah. We haven't got the the suit. So previously to Batman Begins, I think every single film would have either started with a scene with uh, Bruce Wayne in costume as Batman, um, and would have continued on for that way. Then you find out a bit about his backstory after that, but you definitely get your, your... hero up front in a suit you know i think from this point onwards in a lot of movies this was kind of the tack they took that they did the development for a quite a long time before you before they put on the suit and when we go into act two it's going to be very much about how he gets the suit and how he how he builds it and why he builds it exactly and i think i mean primarily this i mean one of the criticisms was essentially that you know maybe a succinct story um would have been would have been better but it would have been at the expense and we would have lost the development of Batman um, as and the development of Batman as a theme. And that sort of idea, I think, that we were talking about, about um, there being a balance that, that Nolan was looking to strike between, you know, who is Batman? Why does Batman exist and in what environment? And then also a story narrative to take that through. Yeah, and, and a summer blockbuster action film. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the things is that I do think that Nolan, as a director, very much in his films explores themes. So it was memory loss and amnesia within um, Memento. Mm-hmm. It was um, lack of sleep, insomnia in insomnia. And I think here he's looking at this theme of, you know, why would a there be the need for a Batman. Why does he exist and who would he be? And he explores these themes in, in films. And I think very like Terence Malick, it's that wide angle shot of look back and capture everything that is society would see and allow people to have that wide angle look. I think he he's very much that type of filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Terence Malick as well. Um, I think Nolan has maybe a slightly bigger output than Terence Malick. (laughs) But, um, you know, sometimes the criticism that would be leveled at that approach is it it has an expense of the story sometimes, or Mm -hmm. maybe people feel the story is maybe given a slight disservice or not enough time to to breathe. Yeah, yeah. And I think if you're going to go and see a summer blockbuster this particular year and you were going to go and see Batman Begins, you would probably be coming out of a, a little... Maybe not disappointed, but you'd be coming out not having your original expectations met. I hope you've seen a better film um, than you probably were expecting to see in the first place. But I do think this, it's not a huge criticism, but my feeling is that this is where David Goyer and and Chris Nolan clashed a lot. I would say David Goyer, knowing the stuff that he's written before, he was very much thinking he was making a comic book film. Uh, to begin with, he wrote the story as a comic book film. He wrote, "Hey, hey, let's have a battle on the ice. Let's have a let's have Raz Al Ghul from the comic books. Um, let's have uh, Victor Zaz. Let's have all these comic book villains." Mm-hmm. And Nolan came in and went, "Well, actually, let's slow it down here. Let's let's show the creation of 
of why Bruce Wayne would put on the suit. Okay, let's slow it down here and show why Bruce Wayne would learn these techniques in a foreign land. Um, and that's where I think Nolan has done the, done an amazing job with the film and, and turning it into you know, a proper cinematic experience rather than just a comic book movie. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so that really kind of takes us into Act 2 then, where you kind of, this is, I think that we said at the start, this is becoming Batman. This is the beginning of an idea and the development of that idea um, by Bruce Wayne following mm -hmm. the reasons for um him wanting to do this in a sense and him mm -hmm. going down that path where this is the the way he would seek justice in Gotham. Yeah, he's taking um, taking everything that he's learned from the League of Shadows and, and seeing if he can implement it in his own city to save the people of the city, not to destroy it. He gets back on his jet, Alfred meets him, really kind of light moment where he's like, well, I'm the Lord of Wayne Manor, I'm, I'm the guy in charge, I, you know, you've not been there for... For seven years, and you can borrow the roles if you like. Yeah. Exactly, you know, just remember to top up the tank of petrol, and you know, so seven years has gone by whilst he's been in the Himalayas, and um, exploring the criminals, and then obviously training with the League of Shadows, mm -hmm. and he comes back to Gotham, where you know you find out he's been declared dead, and uh, Bruce Wayne and um, there's Mr. Earl, there's this guy in the boardroom, Mr. Earl at the top of Wayne Towers, mm -hmm. who's played by Rutger Hauer. And you have an interesting yeah. fact on... I'm, I'm really <laughs> fat boy tonight. Your... Yeah. Um... <laughs> I love this. This is a, this is because of um, Christopher Nolan's... I can't believe you found out before uh, me because I'm such a fan of the film. Yeah, yeah. But anyway... Because of Christopher Nolan's love of Blade Runner, it's one of his favourite films. And that's the style of film he wanted to make with Batman Begins. Um, it's the film he showed the full cast and crew before making Batman Begins and said, this is exactly the type of film I want to make. He cast Rutger Hauer from, from uh, Blade Runner in this you, part of the story. You mean one that was a commercial flop Wonder and then gradually became... Oh, okay, I'm and, sorry. and killed every company that sponsored <laughs> it as well, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I love the fact that that's how he got... That's that's why he got Rutger Hauer on board. It's, um, he's he's in the part um, of Mr. Earl, but it's, uh, it is a very small part and... When you see when you see Rucker Hauer, most people just go, "Uh oh, he's a bad guy." Yeah. <laughs> um, but he plays a, a really good. It, it's the other one of the other elements that's threatening to destroy Bruce Wayne's world throughout this film is the crushing sensation of Wayne Enterprises, which he has no control over, and he's considered as being just benefiting from it. And Mister Earl's trying to take that away as well. He's trying to just go, "Well, you don't really have any any ownership of this." Your father's dead. He didn't have any involvement in it, and I'm going to do whatever I want to with this company. Yeah. So the main thing we kind of find from this is that when Enterprise is going to be go public, um, and that actually Mr. Earl has actually declared that Bruce Wayne is dead because he's he's not been around for then seven years at that stage. So here we get introduced to another uh, villain from the Rogues Gallery of uh, of Batman. We get introduced to Dr. Jonathan Crane, who's yeah. a psychiatrist, uh, sitting in the courtroom defending another of the, of the Rogues Gallery. This is just Rogues Gallery after Rogues Gallery. He's uh, he's defending Victor Zaz. Um, who, if anybody's read the comic books, uh, Victor Zaz is the creepiest. <laughs> he's not Pizzazz, no, Victor Zaz. Uh, he's probably the creepiest of all the villains. He's a serial killer who, every time he kills someone, he uh, cuts a line in his skin. 
Um, so every so every time you see him in the future, he's got more and more cuts within his skin. He's a creepy character. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and weird, he's, weirdly played by uh, yeah the lead singer of James with <laughs> Tim Booth. Yeah. Um, and James is this band which I I remember growing up with these songs. It's Oh Sit Down and oh. Sit Down Next to Me and all, all the. <laughs> There are, that's <laughs> that, only one song. Uh, that's only one song. But, um, <laughs> and I remember all these different songs, Born of Frustration, all these different types of songs, which I really kind of liked. And all of a sudden I found out that this one band from Manchester actually had, had, had done them all and really a good set of tracks. But yeah. here we find him sort of... Um, Playing a creepy serial killer. Yeah, playing yeah. a creepy um, serial If anybody ha- if anybody doesn't know the music of James, they're kind of like a a, a mid nineties hippie band. I would I would kind of think <laughs> of them as. So seeing him play in his first cinematic role with with only two lines, I think, in the entire film, but uh, but playing a creepy serial killer was quite a surprise for me. Um, but yeah, Doctor Crane is obviously the bigger the bigger role in yeah. this in the scene. Particularly, he has a he has a. Um, a, a way of getting criminals off, um, and he's played by um, Killian Murphy. Yeah, the fantastic Irish yeah. actor Killian Murphy, uh, who's become a bit of a touchstone from that point onwards for uh, for Christopher Nolan. Yeah, he's been in big I think collaborator. Every, I think every film that Christopher Nolan's done since then, um, um, with the exception of The Prestige, I think. That's um, right. He was in Inception. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether he's going to be in Interstellar. I don't recall him, but obviously Michael Caine is, and that's one yeah. of the things that you. You suddenly realise, just as a side point, mm-hmm. um, that you know, obviously Nolan, Christopher Nolan as a director, likes to have a settled team to mm-hmm. an extent around him. I mean, if you think his wife Emma Thompson as one of his producers and executive producers, Hans Zimmer uh, uh, in terms of the composer, you have Chris Corbold, special effects uh, supervisor. Yeah. You then have and Christian um, Bale, obviously in Inception and the three yeah. Batman films. No, no, Christian Bale, Prestige and the three Batman films. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> and then um, you have you know David S. Goya, at least for the Batman films, was involved in all three. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have uh, yeah, Killian Murphy, Christian Bale, um, Michael Caine, mm-hmm. all sort of those actors being involved, and we now see Catwoman. Anne Hathaway, obviously in Interstellar. Then the the great Wally Pfister mm-hmm. um, as cinematographer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, he really likes his team uh, and keeps them around him. There's a lot of them that have actually been working on working with him in the behind the scenes all the way back to uh, to the following and um, Memento. Yeah. Yeah, but coming back to um, Dr. Jonathan Crane as we know him at this moment in the courtroom scene, and I find out that you know Victor Zaz is a just a thug of Carmine Falcone in this instance but there's a, a great little interchange with between Rachel Dawes and, and Dr. Crane uh, there just outside the um, the courtroom where you know she's kind of suspicious of maybe his motives that he may be corrupt and in the payroll of one of the mobsters um, and you know she's kind of challenging him on why someone who you know kills people would be sent to a psychiatric hospital and not just sent into prison. And Dr. Crane just argues um, Gotham must have have an affinity to the insane. And Rachel Dawes replies with all the corrupt. And I think that really neatly encapsulates sort of this idea of um, Gotham as, as the city. 
you know, that there is this affinity to just insanity. You could even argue that you know, someone going around in a bat suit is a bit insane. Yeah. Um, Joker but, argues that a lot. Yeah, that. exactly. Um, or then just the downright sort of corrupt and dirty. And I, I think there's, so there's a really good exchange that just sort of, again, just encapsulates this notion of, yeah. of what Gotham is. And then we get the look at some of the first investigations that Bruce Wayne starts to do in relation to his parents' murder, I think. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's looking into Falcone. He's looking into uh, trying to find out a way to take Falcone down. You see him drawing it all together, um, trying to work out what he's going to do uh, and how he's going to take him down. So it's yeah, the first the first criminal investigation of, of the master investigator, I suppose. But while he's sitting there, uh, another scene directly taken from the comic book year one. Um, a bat flies into his study um, and gives him the idea of this is the thing that scares me the most. I'm going to take this as my symbol. Um, Alfred says that the, there's a bat nest somewhere on the uh, on the grounds. And after his experience as a child, Bruce knows exactly where that is. It's down the well that he fell in as a kid. He breaks in and this is his, uh, this becomes his the starting of his bat cave. Yeah, and it, I think it becomes this great sort of... Um birthing moment for the concept of of batman as he explores the the bat cave um and it's just again it's that great shot and we again have the hans zimmer theme comes roaring in and builds and develops as bruce wayne is essentially consumed by all the nesting bats swirling around him and, and moving around him and it you get this huge sort of this feeling of Bruce Wayne being born into the Batman as he kind of stretches up and he then kind of, it's almost like he breathes in the whole moment and, and so on with all these bats uh, swirling around. And I mean, it's, it's a huge sort of pivotal moment within the film where this central concept of the idea of becoming the Batman and using the bat as his way of instilling fear mm-hmm. into his his enemies or his opponents um, is is born and it, it's a great it's a great shot and it just builds this theme like we say with the music and this idea of the Batman yeah. with this motif of all obviously the bats yeah. which again from year one that that yeah. swarm of bats idea yeah directly out of year one yeah yeah and one of the great things that you know this pivotal moment and I think it was an uh, Empire magazine there recently where they just talk about Nolan as the auteur, like mm-hmm. how, yes, all these bats are digitally rendered um, in, in post-production swarming around but there's this lovely sort of onset image of Chris Nolan with, he's got his um, you know, with this bat, one bat on a stick, and he's kind of playing it around <laughs> Christian Bale's head in the bat cave just to give him this idea where you might get some reflex from him and getting out of the way and so on whilst it, it's being filmed. And it's just that idea that, you know, it's so hands-on. Yeah. It's, it's a great, it's great like kind a, of moment to like see the behind the, the scenes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I love yeah. it. The question's been asked for many years: Could anybody be Batman if they had the money? But no, not really. Um, we've kind of mentioned it already. You, ha- you have to have the team around you. Um, mm-hmm. and we've mentioned the fact that Rachel is one of his closest allies, even though she doesn't know who he is. 
uh, Alfred's one of his closest allies, Jim is going to become one of his closest allies, and now we're introduced to a kind of a new character to a lot of people. Um, most of those characters have, have existed in the past. Lucius Fox in the comics came in in the 70s, um, but it was used occasionally. Uh, Played by Morgan Freeman. Yeah. Ding. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, the wonderful Morgan Freeman. Um, and finally answers the question of... <laughs> I know what John's leading to and I'm not going to mention it. <laughs> Can you guess what? <laughs> so Lucius Fox finally answers the question that posed by the Joker in the 1989 Tim Burton film. Where does Batman get all those wonderful toys? Well, apparently it's from Applied Sciences in Wayne Enterprises. Um, Bruce goes for a job for Mr. Earl, doesn't want to take over the company. He goes to get a job in Applied Sciences working with Lucius Fox. Kind of working. He's really just uh, stealing all the good gadgets for himself. Um, so the first thing he asks for is, uh, is a Kevlar suit, which is bulletproof for some spelunking. <laughs> which I at this time was the first time I realised the next scene after that he actually does go spelunking he jumps into the back cave yeah. um, uh, actual cave diving so uh, which I thought was quite fun um, but yeah uh, Lucius provides him with a load of toys really doesn't he yeah and I think you get that kind of sense just from the glint in uh, Lucius Fox's eye that this sense that he knows something mm-hmm. he knows something's going on and certainly later on in the film, you get this idea that Alfred and Lucius are much better acquainted than what you get any other sense, where it's in uh, Bruce's bedroom and they they kind of talking about um, some antidote. And it's like, Lucius, Alfred, there's this kind of knowing sort of look between the two yeah. gentlemen. And yeah, it's, absolutely. Um, Despite the fact that Lucius says, "I don't want to know anything that you're doing, Mr. Yeah. Wayne. You can you can do whatever you want to." Uh, that makes that means uh, you own the company. Yeah. This is your stuff anyway. It means, it means I have plausible deniability. You know exactly that he knows. So you what's get going this on. sense yeah. that you know um, he knows what's going on, but you you then get this series of, of scenes within the film that are cutting in and out of uh, Bruce Wayne going to Lucius Fox to get more gadgets just finding out you know you know he, he turns up and goes well what about sort of base jumping and mm-hmm. lucius fox goes for the billionaire spelunking base jumper kind of yeah. thing and you know and this is all about finding the cape for the batman mm-hmm. uh he then sort of comes back and kind of is introduced to what ultimately becomes the Batmobile, the mm-hmm. Tumbler, uh, where then they go for a test drive and you get the, the classic line, does it come in black? People say the fun is taken out of the Batman because of all this kind of quite heavy exposition about how he gets the Batsuit. For me, personally, this just fed my kid of wanting to build stuff. And, Absolutely. And, like, you know, for me, it was maybe a bit of tinfoil and some cardboard box or something, a bit of throw-off material. You know, this is a, the next... 20 levels above that but to me this just fed that that really that inner kid to this development and building of this like great toy but in this case it's the the bat suit it's the batmobile all this intercutting between lucius and bruce wayne coming to lucius and the creation of the bat suit the development of the uh the bat cave and um ultimately uh, the development of, of the the team surrounding Batman. Mm-hmm. I was just on the side of the Batcave. You get this really interesting um, tale between Alfred and Bruce Wayne about how you know 
his great-great-grandfather used to bring slaves north during the the, the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things we talked about, that you know, not only is there a backstory um, there for Bruce Wayne, but also for Batman and mm-hmm. the creation of Batman, but there are snippets throughout this film where there's also a bit of a backstory developing just for the Wayne family. Absolutely. So you find out his great-great-grandfather was involved in liberating slaves during the American Civil War. Earlier on, you got the reveal that Bruce's father doesn't run Wayne Enterprises, but prefers to become a medical doctor helping people and, and also building the railway, um, the monorail, uh, with Lucius Fox. And again, this is another tie-in of Lucius Fox into this family that's been sort of just hinted at earlier in in, in the story, and that knowing Glint suddenly takes on a different meaning, um, which is really interesting. So, yeah. They they definitely set up the the generations of Waynes, of the Waynes as being saviors of Gotham, essentially, as being helpers in, in Gotham and in America as a whole, yeah. Um, and, really and I think with the, that building of the team, then you begin to get a bit more information. We, you know, we, we were introduced to Jim Gordon immediately after Bruce's mom and dad were were killed and murdered in Gotham City Police Department, yeah. and now we sort of kind of get reintroduced to Jim Gordon again. Obviously, years later, mm-hmm. uh, where he's with Detective Flass, and again, that's that reference from Batman Year One also. Yeah, absolutely. So he's a much old, older, kind of wiser detective. He's he's um, he's dealing with his partner, Flass, who's on the take from everybody and anybody he can get money from. He'll essentially take it. Um, he says essentially that everybody feels that Jim Gordon is makes them all nervous because he doesn't take it. If you don't dip your beak, then, then uh, we, we all get nervous around you. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. we think you're a rat and he provides us with our line that we've used on our website which is uh, and at the start of every episode which is in a town this bent who who's there to rat to anyway but Flash is a proper dirty cop he's a proper evil guy I'm wondering if there's going to be a character very like him in the uh, in the Gotham TV show I'm suspecting there might be one that we've already been introduced to yeah. but then Bruce takes to the streets for the first time not in the full bat suit but very similar to year one he takes to the streets in a, a kind of a make a made up suit where Mm-hmm. Hopefully nobody will recognise his appearance, essentially. And it's not in the hooker district of town, uh, like it was in Batman Year One, but it's in uh, and around Gotham City Police Department, the GCPD. Um, where he goes to meet Jim Gordon and uh, have his first discussion with him. He tells him he's a good cop, unlike the rest of them, and gives him some information about uh, about Falcone. Jim Gordon's still a bit dubious about what's being said here, because he kind of says, you're just one man. And then... Bruce Wayne slash Batman says, now we're two, as he leaves. And Jim looks around, it's completely gone. And he's kind of like, you know, he chases him down across the rooftops, you know, pulls his revolver, and Batman kind of gets away by, like, jumping off the building and crashing down through the the alley stairwell. Um, But it is that idea that there's still this hint that he thinks he's a... Who was that nut? Who was that crazy guy? Yeah. But... But the link has been made now, and it's kind of, you know, that extra bit of support, that part of the Batman team, which is Jim Gordon, has now kind of been, like, semi-recruited, really, into it. One of the other things that I just think is really important on the Batman, when finally 
the Batman suit is revealed after after this scene, mm. because it, it moves to a the whole the Kevlar suit, this uh, base jumping material, uh, and obviously with with the Batmobile, where this gets uh, revealed to to everyone mm-hmm. before the first outing that we see of the bat suit uh, in Gotham. And it's, it's just this really interesting thing, and it brings back to the this fear concept running through the entire film. Alfred says, why bats, Master Wayne? To which Bruce replies, bats frighten me. This time my enemies can share my dread. Mm-hmm. And this feeds so nicely into the next scene where Batman takes down Falcone. Yeah, yeah, fantastic scene in the shipyards. Um, so the information that Batman had provided to Jim Gordon was the connection between Jim and the drug ring that's uh, that's going on. Both both Detective Flash, Jim Gordon's partner, and Falcone are at the are at the docks for the delivery of the of these two separate shipments of drugs uh, in teddy bears, essentially in teddy bears and, and teddy rabbits. Uh, do you call them teddy rabbits? I'm never never sure of that. Um, but essentially, the rabbits are separated from from uh, from the bears and sent to a different location, which is what you find out during They're this piece. They're sent to the drug dealers, aren't they? Uh, yeah, both sent to to different drug dealers, though. Um, and what we essentially get is a scene directly out of Aliens, where Batman is taking off each of the each of the uh, the bad guys or the outlying members of the herd. I suppose is what I what I got from it. He's driving all the all the villains or all the uh, all the goons into one central location as he takes out all the people on the outside and terrifies them. You get little glimpses of the bat suit all the way through this, and it's fantastic. I love this thing. Absolutely loved. Um, he basically is using everything that he's learned from um, from the League of Shadows. Yeah, this uh, idea of deception, or of fear, or of mystery, um, of surprise—all just this whole rabbit warren of, of containers mm-hmm. and taking out the lights and adding fear to the people who he's trying to take down. Yeah, and he essentially drives about 16 of them into one central part and then drops down in the middle of them and takes every one of them out. Um, and you you keep getting these flashbacks to the car, and again, it's just... You know, Flash seems to be going, you know, you might need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. It sounds as though something's going down because machine guns are firing. Uh, but like, Falcone is kind of like... You know, just what the hell is that going on? Yeah. And you you get that whole classic line where you, this image, this shadow is moving around on the peripheral um, and one of the guys, one of the thugs is just like, where are you? Mm-hmm. And he turns slowly round and there's upside down Batman going here mm-hmm. and it, the cape just comes round and you just hear this scream. It's, uh, it's fantastic. It's really good. Uh, really good. Falcone's there in his car, just like try- he's putting cartridges into his shotgun because he's like, I need to like defend myself here. And then the next thing, he's just pulled through the sunroof of his limo, mm-hmm. and it's like he just is like shouting, "What the hell are you?" I'm and Batman. I'm Batman. Yeah, perfect. What the hell are you? <laughs> Brilliant. 
I mean, one of the things as well, we you know, we get a bit more exposition on the, on the actual story that's going on. We kind of realise that Falcone, we kind of think at the beginning, he is you know, he's the man about town. He's he's top of the the pyramid, but you start to get made aware that he's obviously working for Crane, mm-hmm. and there is this idea that you know Crane is working for someone else that yeah. we don't know, this unknown threat. Yeah, we'd, we'd originally thought earlier on in the film, you, you think that it's it's the other way around, it's Crane working for Falcone. And in yeah. fact, it's Falcone working for Crane, who's working for a higher power. I just want to say there's one great little moment when uh, when the police arrive at the docks after this whole fight, and the, they show even the creation of the first bat signal is shown when it's actually Falcone strapped across a, uh, strapped, strapped across a light broadcasting the image into the sky, which I think is fantastic. I yeah, <laughs> and Rachel Dawes is introduced for the first time to Batman as well at the monorail station mm. where she's about to get attacked by Falcone's thugs with the intent to kill her because Dr. Crane thinks that she's getting far too close. Um, you know, she's questioning him, this whole idea about Gotham seems to have this affinity with the insane, and she says the corrupt. And there's this idea that she knows something that that Crane isn't on the level as a psychiatrist, and he's doing this for who we think is Falcone. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, and she's about to get mugged, and it's that whole turn away, and the Batman is taking her attackers down, and he says, "Here's leverage for you." I'm on your side, you know, I'll help you out. I'm working to clean up Gotham yeah. like you. Um, a good little cinematic choice just before that in the monorail itself, which I think is really, you know, whoever designed this, probably uh, probably one of, the, one of the awesome set designers for this. But did you notice that the monorail is totally covered in graffiti? It's, mm. uh, it's, the windows are broken on it. It's a really dangerous location, which when you flash back to Thomas Wayne talking about the monorail, it was built so that the local people could travel around the city very cheaply and um he was built it was built that way and was was owned by Wayne Enterprises essentially show it shows the kind of gap between the Wayne Enterprises as it is now versus the Wayne Enterprises as it was when Thomas Wayne set it up and you know the difference between those two eras of of Wayne Enterprises yeah. absolutely and i think basically we then have this really just iconic moment which essentially brings an end to that second act Mm -hmm. and brings in the third. And it is, as Nolan really loves to do, just these these aerial shots. And in this case, you know, he wasn't using IMAX, I don't think, at this stage. That was purely in The Dark Knight where he first started to introduce IMAX. But these aerial shots, and you have Batman stood on this ledge at the top of a skyscraper, Uh looking down like one of the gargoyles that you would kind of expect uh, in Gotham, looking down over his city, over what he is protecting. And it's as the the camera aerial shot sort of pans round and he's silhouetted against the lights of the the buildings and the city. It's just an iconic, iconic shot where the Batman has been born. Mm -hmm. He has been created. And we then move into this act three where it is him being Batman and you get this resolution to the story. But before becoming Batman, he has to be taught how to be Bruce Wayne again. So essentially, Alfred gives him a bunch of lessons of how to be a billionaire playboy. Um, He's covered in a bunch of bruises. He's waking up at three o'clock in the afternoon and goes 
you know, what the heck am I supposed to do to cover all this up? Yeah, but the flip side of the coin being you're well-known, your family is well-known, and you can't just hide in the shadow. You can't just be the Batman. You need the cover of Bruce Wayne, the billionaire. And he's like, you know, you need to be able to explain the, the bruises which Alfred kind of says, maybe you should take up polo. <laughs> which <laughs> Bruce Wayne's like, polo? Like, Jenny? And then, you know, you also need this social life. And it, it kind of brings sort of one of the lighter moments to of the whole film, the, the hotel scene where mm-hmm. he sat down having an evening meal. He's brought two girls along with him and they start undressing, sort of getting into the hotel reception pool. Yeah. He's kind of like fobbing it off and don't worry, they're, they're from Europe, they're uh-huh. European. And then to make the headlines to keep the cover of Bruce Wayne, I'm buying the hotel and they're just kind of strutting his stuff, sort of put it, um, throwing his weight around yeah. to an extent. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, as he walks out with, uh, he cli- sorry, firstly he climbs into the pool uh, <laughs> with the two European supermodels. Uh, but as he's leaving, soaking wet, he walks out the door and, you know, no bit of levity in a in Nolan film will be allowed to stand. So, of course, who's going into the restaurant? But Rachel, the one girl he's trying to impress with everything he's learned and show her that he's turned a new leaf and he's not the billionaire playboy, sees him in the worst possible moment of being the billionaire playboy. Yeah, and you have this really touching moment because you have to remember these are kind of lifelong friends. So kind of, they mm-hmm. are lifelong friends. And he says, this isn't what I am. He's trying to reach out to her. We've just had that scene uh, on the monorail station. Mm-hmm. And she kind of turns to him. And again, it's this other kind of beat within the film about it's what you do that defines you. It's not who you are underneath. So it's like it's what you do that yeah. defines you. And again, it's one of these other these beats uh, like uh, with uh, Thomas uh, Wayne saying, why do we fall so we learn to pick ourselves up? These the, these points of wisdom that inform Bruce Wayne and Batman, mm-hmm. whilst he is Batman, to how he trusts people, how he behaves, how what his sort of moral centre is. And it, again, it's that other beat um, to, to that moral centre yeah. of, of Batman. Absolutely, um, and then we start cracking into the uh, cracking into the closing, essentially, where we're uh, where we start setting up all the dominoes to fall. Um, we have the scene with Falcone and Doctor Crane, and we finally see the <laughs> Scarecrow, which I love. It's That's great. Awesome. It's one to me. These are the best bits of um, visual effects. The mm-hmm. the computer generated effects of the film uh, is the the hallucinogen this fear yeah uh, with the scarecrow um and it's really stupidly carmen falcone is trying to bribe dr crane by saying i know the experiments i've seen everything you've done to those inmates i know you're not just a psychiatrist he's like oh i like i use this mask on my inmates and then gasses him and turns him insane but you have this great sort of little bit of dialogue between the two of them before where it's like you know falcone is kind of just like He's just hunched over the desk as as uh, Dr. Crane comes in. And he's like, I can't take it anymore, Doctor. I, I can't even do a sort of a, a, a New York accent, so I won't even try. Oh, go on, I've done I tried a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I can't take it anymore. Um, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and he's just kind of doing that thing, and it's just so funny. And, right. 
and he kind of says, if I eat any more of the food in here, I probably will go insane. Just, <laughs> and sort of Dr. Crane isn't finding this at all funny. And Falcone just thinks he's going to just get a doctor's note almost to get him out of here. Exactly. And in Scary. a sinister kind of way, Dr. Crane just turns around and says, let me show you my mask. And he pulls out the Scarecrow mask and mm-hmm. then gasses him. And drives, yeah, drives him insane and sends him to Arkham Asylum, yeah. so, uh, which is essentially one of our one of our central points for the rest of the film. Um, so what we found out is that the two sets of drug shipments, uh, one is sent to the Narrows, one is sent to um, sent to the other drug dealers. Um, so this is all where everything's starting to build up. We find out that um, that there's a piece of Wayne Tech that's been uh, that is a water destroyer, essentially designed for desert combat uh, which will destroy um, the opposing army's water supply not too sure about that one we'll talk that a bit we'll talk about that yeah. one a bit later on but yeah. it's a pretty interesting piece of tech but essentially the DA who's um, who's Rachel Dawes boss finds this piece of Wayne tech on the docks in uh, in Gotham and gets murdered for it, uh, setting up a, a future DA which we'll talk about in, in a future film um, yeah. you have the um interrogation of Flass by by the Batman mm-hmm. um, in relation to the shipment as well. And you, you get, again, some classic dialogue from the film where he gets pulled up by his, his ankle up about ten stories from the alleyway and Batman's interrogating him. Flass is kind of panicked and he's like, I swear to God, I'm telling you the truth. I swear to God. And just Batman just like growls back at him. It's like, swear to me. Yes. And it's like, oh yeah, like it's real, real brutal, elemental kind of stuff. And that idea again of the fear of, of Batman. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm definitely thinking there's a lot of pieces in here that are coming from Gore's script, um, as well as, you know, just, I'd say working with Nolan probably drove a lot of this stuff, but you know, we get a we get a little quip from from Scarecrow as as Batman goes and finds his lair, um, where he's trying to destroy all the evidence of of the uh, of the shipment of this fear. Let's call it the fear gas. Now we can do that. People have seen the film, so uh, where we've uh, where he's storing all this stuff and where all the all the rabbits have been delivered. Essentially, um, Batman finds him here when. Scarecrow meets Batman face to face for the first time. He he tells him you look like a man that takes himself too seriously. In my opinion, you need to lighten up. Just after spraying him with fear gas and setting him on fire. So, yeah, real comic book moment there. Yeah, and again, you have those great visuals where the bats start coming out of the Scarecrow's mouth. These quick cuts to the Bruce's psychosis about the bats from his childhood. Really good. Yeah, and what I love about this, you know, we can be mentioned it before it's about the team that's around batman as well absolutely without the help of alfred brute batman would not have escaped from from being set on fire um he crawls and and climbs his way up the building into to being the fire put out by the rain on the roof but he just about calls alfred and gets alfred to come and pick him up and take him home essentially after after this bat- first battle with the scarecrow and just a quick point of reference in in the film is that whilst Batman is in the Narrows, where he's just been interrogating Flass, and where he's about, he goes just where he goes to 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 find where Scarecrow is hiding some of these shipments that are coming into the Narrows. We do get a glimpse of the future King Joffrey. <laughs> it's one of those kind of moments where where the film. Just brought back, you know, to say, well, you know, kids can enjoy this, and yeah. you get to see, I think, is it Jack Gleason? Mm-hmm. Um, 
who becomes the future King Joffrey. Yes, and, and the, future, um, the future of a billion internet memes telling them if only Batman had thrown him off off the top of the, <laughs> the, the building, we would never have had a King Joffrey, which I think is horrible. But uh, but yeah, it's very horrible. But um, I mean, what he did to Sansa, uh, yeah, yeah, spoilers, spoilers um, for another series. <laughs> I mean, um, then we also kind of find out that it's Bruce's birthday. And we learn about this whilst Bruce is recovering from the effects of this hallucinogen drug that Scarecrow has sprayed him with. Mm-hmm. And luckily, he's been out for two days. Lucius Fox has managed to synthesize an antidote to, to get him out of that slumber and to prevent the, the true effects of this fear, this panic drug taking hold of him and essentially crushing his mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is this theme as well of the strength of the mind over the body uh, from the power of this hallucinogen it then cuts back to rachel going to arkham because falcone's had his breakdown rachel just thinks this is another ploy by crane to to get uh, falcone off the hook um she doesn't realize sort of the deeper um things that are going on in the background here she just thinks it's it's crane being corrupt trying yeah. to get off and Falcone. like she, and like she's always recommended to bruce she goes off alone to take on showing you absolutely no fear she goes on to take on uh dr crane at, at arkham asylum uh, obviously she doesn't know what we'd know i wouldn't go anywhere near that place to be honest um, but yeah once she gets there she's um she's essentially attacked by by crane and uh, given a concentrated dose of the uh, of the fear gas yeah and um but she has been followed by batman uh-huh. here and so the batman arrives and there's the great line then from the scarecrow where one of one of his thugs turns around to him and says well what should we do and he's like what well, what you should always do call the police uh-huh. and and this kind of leads into something that's so reminiscent it's just it's at Arkham Asylum rather than an empty sort of abandoned house. But it's straight out of Batman Year One with the exception of it being sort of firebombed by the police, which I thought at the time in Batman Year One that was hilarious. Bit of overkill, yeah. Bit of overkill. (laughs) Batman essentially gets Rachel Dawes out but saves himself from being arrested by, again, summoning all the bats with his little sonic device mm-hmm. that calls them to him to allow him to escape from uh, the SWAT team that's kind of closing in yeah. around him. But not before driving Jonathan Crane insane with his own fear gas, which I love. Yeah, yeah proper, exactly. Properly, it gives him a proper overdose of the of it and from then on he is scarecrow he is no longer dr yeah. jonathan crane <laughs> you get the great line is like dr crane isn't here right now but if you'd <laughs> like to make an appointment and it's just a great bit of comedy um, <laughs> you know as he's kind of having this psychotic turn that <laughs> you know you get the answer machine uh <laughs> message it's really 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 funny um but also from this there is sudden realisation to Batman, he is told that who is putting this in the water, but he learns that it's Ra's al Ghul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, That's the big uh, thing that uh, the Scarecrow gives away. Yeah, so Ra's al Ghul is not dead, or has he returned to life? Yeah, yeah exactly, with the Lazarus pit. Mm-hmm, possibly. Yeah. Um, so we get our kind of our biggest action sequence after this. Really, this mm-hmm. is our uh, this is the drive through the city. A really realistic action sequence, apparently, with uh, with the tumbler uh, driving through the city. It's obviously um, the way that Nolan likes to do things. It's uh, 
it's shot from from above from many angles and is generally quite quite a shot as it happens. Yeah, a lot a lot of models used as well. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly some of the underground sequence uh, sequences that are done. And you have the police describing it as a black tank. Jim Gordon's, I've got to get myself one of those. Sure, we would all love to have the Batmobile. Absolutely. Um, but, and it's all to get Rachel back to the Batcave to give her the antidote because she's received um, a concentrated version of the fear toxin mm-hmm. that Scarecrow has been using. And, you know, before her brains kind of like melt out of her ears, um, <laughs> that Batman needs to save her. But I do love the fact that, you know, all the visual effects of, of like sort of Batman oozing sort of oil out of his mouth and the scarecrow with bats coming out of his mouth and mm-hmm. all these sort of um, pulsing environments and doorways when people have been exposed to this fear toxin. Ultimately, I mean, it, it's something that makes me laugh all the time that Rachel has just had a concentrated dose. She sat next to the Batman in a big vehicle yeah. that is crashing through things and blowing things up. And in fairness, I think, you know, she she plays it, re- Katie Holmes plays it really well in some of her looks that she does, mm-hmm. where it's like she's just freaking out that, you know, I'm surprised her brain just didn't explode <laughs> with the fear toxin. Yeah, because really honestly, if I was in the Batmobile driving at that speed, I would be freaking out completely. All this uh, all this chase scene kind of ends with a bit of a Simpsons moment where, uh, where Batman turns off the light in his car and it's, <laughs> it seems to disappear from view out the window of 200 cop cars that are traveling and the helicopter that's flying above them. Um, it's a little bit much to believe. But hey, you know, we've got we've gone <laughs> almost two hours into the film without a complete moment of disbelief. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah, now uh, that well is one of the oddest uh, moments or maybe the most convenient yeah. moments of the film. How do we yeah. end this How do we end this scene I'll where we'll turn off the lights? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's fantastic. So Batman brings Rachel back to the Batcave and he gives her the antidote that Lucius had given him previously um, and then essentially sedates her and sends her back but with the instructions that you're going to wake up at your um, your own house and you need to go and get these antidotes to Jim Gordon. As Bruce goes off to enjoy his 30th birthday party with uh, with a bunch of hangers on as he likes to call. <laughs> yeah or two-faced friends as well which is the, the interesting sort of reference to Harvey Dent two-faced. Yeah. yeah. Uh, at this birthday party we essentially are getting the big reveal that Ra's al Ghul is not dead. Mm-hmm. Um, Bruce Wayne is introduced by one one of his, the people at the party. Uh, have you met this this lovely chap, this nice guy called... What's the name? Is it Raish? Yeah, Raish al Ghul. Um, and it's not anyone who we've seen before. And then behind him is... Ducard, mm-hmm. who we see Batman save uh, at the monastery, and there is this um, sort of reveal that it is Ducard hiding, maybe in plain sight, that it that is that was Razal Ghul, that he is this timeless person mm-hmm. who hides in plain sight. Yeah. So in the comic books, uh, which we haven't really talked about much, but Raisha is, is an immortal character who can who can bring himself back to life by using the Lazarus Lazarus pits. Um, in this, 
film. It's obviously immortality would be something that Christopher Nolan would shy away from as a storyline, but he does bring the question up and answers it as is Ray Salgul immortal? Uh, are his methods supernatural? Or are they just cheap parlor tricks? Which is all the parlor tricks that he's taught Bruce uh, through the League of Shadows. Um, thought that was a really good idea. Yeah, um, but we get this really interesting exchange between uh, the two of them where you know Ra's al Ghul is essentially saying you know watch Gotham tear itself apart through fear and it comes back to this this fear element you you begin to to hear that the League of Shadows has been this check on society and for the League of Shadows mm. Gotham has has become bloated corrupt it's grown too big for its boots it, it's become decadent um, and it needs to have the brakes put on that. And he talks about the sack of Rome, the plague and the fire of London as being times in history where the League of Shadows have acted to put that brake on society. Yeah, and they and they say that they've tried to take down Gotham before by introducing economics as a way of taking it down, but because of people like Thomas and Martha Wayne, who stood up by using their money to influence the uh, the rest of the society to bring Gotham through the terrible time. Um and now this time they're going to use the fear gas and and fire and uh, and fear to take down Gotham for once and for all uh, because the economics didn't work last time. Yeah, and he, he says a really interesting line which says, no idealists will get in the way this time. Mm-hmm. Kind of and almost the suggestion that, you know, and I don't know, it's not confirmed, but... You know, were they involved in the killing of Thomas and Martha Wayne? Mm. Because they did disrupt their plans through economics by building the monorail and and, and so on. Mm-hmm. So th- there is that suggestion there. There is that hint that that could be a possibility. Mm. And then we get the sacking of essentially Wayne Manor and Ducard or Raz al Ghul now says, you burnt my house and left me for dead. Consider the favour returned. Bruce Wayne is essentially sort of trapped by a bit of falling uh, masonry. Yeah, and Alfred saves him for a second time. Again, you know, this crew that's around that's around Bruce, the people that he surrounded them with, he wouldn't be able to get through the situations that he gets through without all of these people. Everybody thinks of Batman as a real loner. He thinks of himself as a real loner. But once again, if it wasn't for having Alfred around, uh, he wouldn't be able to get out of it. Yeah, and then they race to the Batcave where you actually find out... Um, and you've, you've seen it previously where it's it's the, the, the three chords on the piano that open up the, the bookcase down into the Batcave. And that's certainly a reference to Batman 66. Right. Directly out of um, Batman 66. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a really good story. And I'll, I'll interrupt this whole uh, sequence now quickly. But a really good story of, uh, of Nolan and David Gore when they were writing the script together. Um, that they used to go down to the original Batcave from the 60s mm. TV series, uh, which is just underneath the Hollywood sign in, in L.A. Um, they used to go down there to just kind of inspire themselves. So uh, so they obviously were huge fans of the 66 Batman series and incorporated that element into into even this, this darkest version of Batman. Yeah. yeah, and so they go down so that he can put on the Batsuit because at this moment then, like, Arkham is kind of going crazy and Mm -hmm. chaos is ensuing you've got um the prisoners being released from arkham asylum with victor zaz and the scarecrow being released you have that jump with to raz now uh raz al ghul in the narrows and he's kind of saying time to spread the word and the word is panic 
and this idea that everything is going to chaos as now the the revelation that all these shipments coming in that Dr. Crane was putting into the drinking water uh, of Arkham, testing it on the inmates of Arkham, and that the microwave emitter that was um, stolen from Wayne Enterprises all come together in, in this plan where it's going to vaporize the water in the, the mains water supply in the Narrows and across Gotham City to release this fear toxin that we have been seeing from the very start into the atmosphere yeah. and release it to cause panic and to cause just sort of mental breakdown among the population of Gotham. Mm-hmm. And it's quite interesting that actually... The previous uh, Raz al Ghul by Ken Watanabe, mm-hmm. he essentially, right in the first act, lays bare the exact plan, the exact story that is set to follow mm-hmm. in Batman Begins. It's kind of hidden, like Raz al Ghul in plain sight. And that is a really interesting little touch to, to, to the story here. Um, now, I think one of the criticisms of vaporizing the water supply is that as human beings, we're obviously 80% water, that maybe we would get vaporized or, you know, our eyes would explode in their sockets. Um, so I, think, I, mean, I think it would like be, it'd be like that scene in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark where they just turn into dust, essentially. That's basically what would happen if we got her, if we, all the water was vaporized around the area. Yeah, so I think... But they've obviously worked on the project for a long time. So. Yeah, so, um, well, I think we can... <laughs> You know, I think we can push that under the carpet with yeah. heightened environment. Yes, you know, okay. that type of thing. But I mean, you know, it is one of the criticisms of the plot, and I think we need to sort of at least acknowledge that that mm-hmm. as beings made up of eighty percent water with a microwave emitter that is supposedly going to do this, be in the vicinity. I don't know. Yeah, I but, think I think we yeah. just have to go for a suspended disbelief. I think that's about as far as I can give it. <laughs> and one of the interesting things is, you know, one of the criticisms again of Batman Begins, not only this plot point but i mean i think you can forgive it for being also a graphic novel comic book movie uh-huh. these things happen but people say that it took itself too seriously well obviously not um, yeah, you know um i do think the reference earlier on of, of of um of dr crane saying to batman that he looks like someone that takes himself too seriously why doesn't he lighten up i think that's that is a reference of of nolan knowing that he's taking his himself very very seriously and enjoying taking himself very yeah, seriously and he's fully aware of that yeah. absolutely and actually this whole element descends into it's kind of quite gruesome actually mm-hmm. um you know you get to see a bit of cannibalism yeah. there's a hint of zombieism going on um with the fear toxin you you know you see um you see detective flass where he's like half skeleton and um, you know his sort of this his bones showing through his face yeah. kids with sort of glazed over white eyes and um, as as this fear toxin spreads through through the narrows and then you you see someone sort of biting the, the the ear or the neck off someone in sort yeah. of a, almost like a cannibalistic type of ritual. I mean, very brief um, moments, but mm-hmm. you know, it, it just it's a little touches to this descent into being quite gruesome. There's also another great zombie scene. I think it's absolutely taken from some of Romero's type of zombie scenes where the residents of um, of the Narrows, including some cops that are on that are on the island, all form around around Batman and it is it's like as if he's being taken apart by the zombie horde he uses his uh, his 
his bat shot to take him out. His bat gun to take him grapple out. Grapple gun. Grapple gun, that's yeah. the one. Uh, he uses his grapple gun, grapple gun to take him out of there, attaches himself to the monorail, and off he goes to uh, to save the day. And you have this great, again, it's the fear effect that is, is employed throughout this, this movie. I mean, I've probably gone on about it far too long, but I mean, <laughs> you know, you have the horse breathing fire with Crane on it, and there's you know, a great point where he's trying to kill um, Rachel Dawes. She's defending King Joffrey. Um, <laughs> so that's why nobody likes Rachel Dawes, is it? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, and she just tasers, you know, sends out a taser to the to the face, and Crane disappears. That's the last um, the screaming. Doctor Crane yeah, rides off into the distance. We, we see him, but you know, you have this lovely image of the bat flying over people whilst he's on the grapple gun, and his eyes are lit up red. He's breathing fire. Um, just this personification of fear mm-hmm. um, and as this train is heading to, to Wayne Towers and Batman's there to try and, and, and stop Ra's al Ghul from essentially sending the train with the microwave emitter to Wayne Towers which seems to be the hub of everything not only is it a central like railway um, station yeah. but it also and seems cent- to... and the center of industry it's also the center of the uh, of the, the power water, grid and, and the water, water supply and the water supply so i mean this is like you know, all the eggs in one basket mm-hmm. take out wayne towers and yeah. um where wayne enterprises is and that's it i the don't cities. think there'd be many city planners that would yes. actually agree to that yeah. do you think um so he's out there to stop raz al ghul they have their final battle on the monorail, obviously, on the way to on the way to the hub, um, and it's up to uh, it's up to Jim Gordon in the Batmobile to save the day as well, you know. So once again, not Batman doesn't do it on his own. It's Jim Gordon that helps him out. Yeah, he's blow, trying to blow up one of the towers that holds up this sort of suspended um, train line. Meanwhile, on the train, Bruce is fighting with uh, with Raz and um, beating him up, but. Uh, but Raz doesn't understand the plan. Raz thinks that he's going to be able to, uh, that Bruce is trying to fight him and kill him and beat him. Um, he thinks he's trying to actually stop the train as well. Yeah, but so he destroys the controls of it. Um, the whole plan is not is not revealed to Raz um, until Bruce turns to him and says, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to become that man. But I don't have to save you. And this is another kind of point that a lot of people criticize, you know. Um, Batman's not a killer. He in general, in the comics, he gets people arrested and puts them in Arkham. That's kind of the thing. So one of the pieces here is, yeah, okay, so he's not going to kill him, but he's going to let him die. It's kind of the same thing if, to a lot of people. Definitely, it's it's the same thing to a lot of people, but the technicality of, are you worth saving? It, it's that idea that injustice is everywhere. It's not just simply these huge injustices on the people of Gotham. It's those smaller things. And I think here, it, it's the same kind of thing. It's yeah, like, it's a bit more grey. Um, yeah, it's greyer, but it's... I don't have to save you. This is your making. You can escape this, and I'm not going to take you with me. Yeah. You can still leave, escape, but if you don't, you might, and probably will, die. Yeah, since you gave him about ten seconds to uh, to escape, it's probably, yeah, probably yeah. the latter. But... but- but he'd be planned better. Yeah, and, the uh, train crashes and blows up. The microwave emitter kind of blows up the entire train and so on, and mm-hmm. the water stops vaporizing. Gotham is saved from this danger. And one of the things that kind of we had, we had spotted is 
then sort of Jim Gordon is looking up as sort of Batman flies overhead after escaping from the train and sort of right behind him is just Wayne right. <laughs> of the Wayne Enterprise on the building yep. as he flies overhead, sort of a big guess who it is, like a little nod. It's sort like, of hello Jim, hello yeah, Jim. Yeah. And, uh, and spoilers for the rest of the series, but Jim doesn't actually know that Batman is Bruce Wayne forever. Like, he essentially <laughs> is the only person kept in the dark, despite that huge thing went up there for him. But hey, that's the first notice. Um, but yeah, and just kind of, it kind of goes into wrap-up from there, really. There's uh, there's some good little good little beats, I suppose, at the end that set up the rest of this film series. But I mentioned at the start that this was to, that this movie was originally set to set up a prequel to Batman, Batman the Tim Burton film. So a lot of this film, a lot of these kind of final beats are, just in case this film doesn't work, we're going to actually lead into um, into Tim Burton's Batman, right? So they they set up the fact that Bruce is going to, be, is going to take over uh, Wayne Enterprises again. So he buys it up through a lot of stocks and shares, uh, some stuff that's... Yeah, and you get that kind of nice sort of uh, cathartic moment where um, Mr. Earl... Um, essentially gets fired mm-hmm. by Lucius Fox and the reason why that has so much resonance is because the- previous to that Lucius Fox has been fired uh, whilst he's been trying to make this antidote has been fired by Mr. Earl but he doesn't know he's completely in the dark that Bruce Wayne has done this and he kind of gets to eat a bit of humble pie here Yeah, um, and it's kind of it's again one for the, the the regular, the good corporate businessman, I suppose. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then you have Bruce standing in the ruins of uh, in the ruins of Wayne Manor, um, saying that he's going to rebuild it uh, as it was before, brick by brick. Um, while he's discussing with Alfred, and Alfred makes the point, oh, well, maybe we could improve the uh, improve the structure of the foundations mm. over near the area where the Batcave is, which is great. Um, and there's the bittersweet moment of it, really, with Rachel. In the Narrows, he saves her from, from Crane on the horse. Mm-hmm. He, he re-utters the, the line that she did at the hotel, where she goes, um, it's what you do, it's not about what's underneath the, sort of the front or the persona. And she says, the mask is Bruce Wayne, and the real face is Batman. It is, again, coming to this notion of who is the other person in this. You know, yeah. it is the argument that it's normally Batman, but the argument is said that it's Bruce Wayne. Yeah. And, you know, she kind of... Similar, it's similar to the argument they always say about Superman, that the, that the mask that he wears is Clark Kent, it's not Superman. Yeah. yeah. And that, so maybe when Gotham no longer needs Batman, and that certainly plays out then in the next film... When, when there's no longer the need for the dark knight, when there is maybe a white knight available, then that he, Bruce Wayne, will return um, as he never so far has come back from the travels that he did abroad to, to the Himalayas. And that's a bit of a bittersweet moment because I think there there is this element that Bruce Wayne is looking, he's kind of told her the truth and he thinks that this will be enough for her to kind of reconnect with him and mm-hmm. for them to maybe explore their feelings for one another that they had growing up. And this, to me, is just a real sort of bittersweet kind of type of moment at, at the end of the film. Absolutely, but again, it's it, one of the things that probably allows it to connect into the Batman film is that it's showing that 
Bruce can't have a wife or anything like that. Yeah. It is, it's simply setting up that, yes, Rachel is his friend from childhood. Yes, the two of them have feelings for each other, but they can't be together. Batman and is so big. Rachel knows that. Yeah. Yeah. Batman is so big now for um, to Bruce Wayne uh, and that the, the persona of who is who almost is blurred mm -hmm. and, and gets lost. Absolutely. Uh, and then we have our final credits tag, essentially, which is something that Marvel have been doing in the middle of their trailers uh, yeah. for years after this film. But uh, they decided to do a pre-credits tag as we... Uh, or the end of the film, as we, as it used to be known, um, <laughs> where uh, where Jim Gordon calls on Batman one last time by mm -hmm. using his brand new bat symbol modeled on uh, modeled on Falcone uh, across a across a, a, a spotlight. He says to he says to Batman, "Well, I couldn't find a, a criminal to strap onto it. I've uh, built this from scratch," <laughs> which is yeah. a good little moment. And he kind of talks about escalation, and he says, "You know, if if we were bulletproof." Jackets, they use armor start, and bullets. Yeah. yeah, and he says, "What about escalation? You put on the mask. What will other people do?" And from that, he goes, "Take this guy. He has a taste for the theatrical." And um, sort of referencing the fact that the only reason he's doing this is because of the theatricality that Batman, in a sense, has brought to crime fighting and Gotham. Mm -hmm. um, and he obviously pulls out. In an evidence bag, a Joker card. Yeah, yeah. Definitely left, when I remember seeing this in the cinema, that left me with the moment of, when's the next one coming out? I know exactly. Yeah, yeah. I really want to see this. I know, I know, I know what's coming and can't wait. Um, and it's one of the things, one of the points I want to make about this is, even in Nolan's films, this is a pre-existing villain. Joker is a villain that is uh, is existing in Gotham at the time, and it's only now that... Jim Gordon goes, well, maybe I should bring this to Batman, essentially. Uh, maybe I could get his help on this. Um, so once again, another character that exists in the universe and maybe will be in the Gotham TV show, um, but has existed in Gotham, had his own life up to that point, and only now is he being, uh, is he starting to become a, a bad villain to, or a bad guy uh, for, for Batman. For me, I think, in terms of restarting the, the franchise... Nolan really does a great job. I think we can maybe now look back at it and or you know people will sort of do uh, a retake on it and say well maybe it is a bit too dark and a bit too moody and a bit too intense and maybe a bit too serious or or full of itself. I I don't personally buy that because I think ultimately you have to realize where it came from and it came from neon eight-year-olds being involved in the script and people talking about the nipples on the bat suit more than the story and i mean if, it, if nothing else maybe yeah i mean no film is perfect but this this film reconnects it to one of the best graphic novels which is batman year one mm -hmm. i mean that there are so many frank miller references um, from year one taken from this film as well as um, you know great acting i mean christian bale does a absolute great job of being bruce wayne alfred as this emotional center as well to uh, bruce wayne is is really good um sort of you know liam neeson killian murphy uh, as the two uh, bad guys is amazing and i mean you have that 
uh, you know something to say in relation to sort of the number Pe- people say you can't introduce a lot of bad guys or a lot of characters to a film over yeah. to you Derek. <laughs> well absolutely like you know a couple of our a couple of pieces of feedback that were read back read at the beginning of this relatively long episode um a couple of the pieces of feedback were already saying uh, how the heck can they introduce this many characters into the TV series? How how can they introduce this many characters into uh, a thirteen episode or sixteen episode or possibly twenty two episode TV series? You know that's twenty two hours worth of shows potentially, um, where they can explore these characters in much greater detail than Nolan did. But what Nolan introduced was Victor Zaz, Carmen Falcone, Raz Al Ghul. Ducart, who's the hand man of, of Raz al Ghul. Raz al Ghul um, Mark II. Yeah. <laughs> he introduced um, Jonathan Scarecrow, Crane. Scarecrow and Jonathan Crane. Um, he introduced um, Flass, Detective Flass, as another bad guy. That's all the bad guys. And then also the the whole syndicate of, of characters that surround the Batman. Lucius and, Fox, yeah. Rachel Dawes, um, obviously there's Alfred, and yeah. um, there's Mr. Earl. Yeah. All these different things. Absolutely. Um, There's so many elements and so many characters in here. And if you don't believe that a TV series can introduce all of these characters and do it well, you know, I, I I beg to differ. Go watch Batman Begins and see how it was done by a great director and by, by a really good writer. Don't get me wrong. But I'm, I'm really hopeful uh, going into the series. Yeah. And there are some really iconic moments uh, in this film. And... Uh, to me, these are the main beats in the film where you have the, the swirling bats. First, it's at the start. It's where Bruce Wayne finds and breathes in the Batcave and becomes Batman or or gets the idea to become Batman. And then finally, you know, when he is becoming the Batman and he's there like a gargoyle watching over his city... And then he goes and, and protects them from the threat of the League of Shadows. And some really iconic moments and some things that I think Nolan just does builds on and gets better at doing those types of of shots in the Dark Knight particularly. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, obviously, this is definitely a recommend. I mean, I would say it's a, a three and a half to four Sheriff stars or batarangs or detective badges, um, and we would we would recommend. I mean, I, I suppose not many people who are listening to the podcast will have maybe not seen this movie, but mm. I mean, I would recommend if there are people who haven't watched the movie, watch it and and just see how appreciate the context that it was made in that it was coming off some really awful Batman films, which I mean, quite honestly, you know. Okay, I can look back at them now and laugh, but I kind of was like, you know, draw on the uh, draw on the floor, going, what have they done to yeah. the, this character? I mean, it was even worse. I mean, you know, people complain about Batman sixty six, but I mean, that still was kind of it was serious. It it, it was it this outright just sort of just trashed the the property, I think, to an extent. And I'm sure there'll be a point where we have to review them. And it might be jokey. <laughs> I was um, actually going to say that. We're going to have to go back and review um, pretty much every film that has any of the characters that are going to be in the TV show. Um, we know that there are some characters that are coming up in the TV show that are in those films. So There's part um, of me that so has a soft... So don't destroy them. No, yes, no I'm not we'll, going to destroy them. We'll talk them about them in the future. Part of uh, me has a soft spot for the Riddler, for example. Of course. Uh, Jim Carrey. Um, so Maybe not. 
<laughs> but for me, it's definitely three point five to four sort of. Uh, I'm, surprised you, I'm surprised you've gone as low as you have on that, but yeah. yeah. No, because I think placing that in the context of what I know to come next and what I know is the third film, and I think I'd say three point five. I would or four. Yeah, 3.75. It is a total recommend for Mm -hmm. me. It's someone as well who is building their craft, and so it's a recommend. Definitely go and watch it if you haven't already. Yeah, yeah, I'm certain you have because we told you to, and if you didn't, and you skip to the end here where we gave you a rating, then go back and watch it and go back and listen to what we said. Uh, I hope we haven't just had a discussion about this. I hope you guys felt that there was uh, there was a bunch of stuff that we a bunch of information that we provided to you and, a bit, and stuff about our opinions about it. Um, I absolutely love Batman Begins. Really, really enjoyed. I've watched it many, many times at this stage. Uh, there are some little drags uh, in the middle of of it. Um, actually, mostly within the first act. I find it drags a little bit, but. Uh, I agree with John. It's it's not it's not the best of the franchise, but it's definitely a great setup and something far better than what Joel Schumacher accomplished during his time uh, at the helm of, of the Bat franchise. Yeah, I mean, uh, there there is also just quickly as well. There is a, an argument to say that the third act is jam packed with a lot of stuff going on, and mm-hmm. so it can feel rushed, even though it is the longest act that we've identified out yeah. of. Uh, Time wise, it is the longest act. Without a doubt, yeah. there's probably um, a lot going on, but there's definitely a lot going on in every single act, and that's why it's so difficult to cover this movie in such in, in a short period of time. I, I think there's so much to talk about with it. But well, we we hope you've enjoyed our podcast. We hope as well that maybe it gets you to go out and watch this film again and enjoy it for a second or third or fourth or fifth time, or twentieth uh, exactly. And <laughs> um, so, I mean, for me, I'd really like to say thank you guys for for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it again any feedback that you want to provide on this uh, show on any of the comments we've made any thoughts that you have that maybe you want to add that we may have missed or not maybe developed as as much as you would have liked please please get in contact connect with us on facebook on google plus um, or on Twitter. Yep, you'll be, we'll be covering the the Nolan Batman uh, movies for the next two episodes. So uh, so get in contact with us on Gotham TV Podcast at gmail dot com. Um, you can also call us on Skype. We have our Skype account up there again. It's Gotham TV Podcast. Um, but yeah, keep in contact with us. We're loving your yeah. feedback. So and far. you can leave comments on the website as well at Gotham TV dot com. Please feel free to do so. Thank you very much, and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks, everyone. Bruce. Deep down, you may still be that same great kid you used to be. But it's not who you are underneath. It's what you do that defines you. Yeah, certainly. So, um, starring Christian Bale as Batman, Batman Begins charts the origin of uh, Batman. Bat- <laughs> <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Great kind of reference, you know, can you ride stick? Yeah, it's obviously not uh, an automatic. <laughs> <laughs>
blah, blah, blah. Lucius Fox in the comics came in in the 70s, um, but it was used occasionally. Uh, Played by Morgan Freeman. Yeah. Ding. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, the wonderful Morgan Freeman. Um, And finally answers the question of... (laughs) I know what John's alluding to, and I'm not going to mention it. (laughs) Can you guess what? (laughs) So Lucius Fox finally answers the question posed by the Riddler. (laughs) (laughs) Blah, blah, blah.